Hello, everyone, and thanks for checking out the Indie Handshake Wrestling Podcast. I am overjoyed today to bring one of my favorites from the NorCal and beyond independent scene from the early 2000s, Mr. Tom Carter, also known as Reckless Youth. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me on today. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to uh, where the conversation goes today. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on. Um, I remember the when I first started discovering independent wrestling, I would go to shows like Big Time Wrestling and other ones in Northern California, because that's where I live. And then you were one of the wrestlers I immediately gravitated towards as a fan uh, because of you, the reckless style, you know, hate to do that to you. But um, <laughs> it was uh, a lot. You had a lot of, well, skill you know, actually in wrestling, but also doing high flying moves, everything. You kind of had a big melding style, which I think was kind of before its time. Uh, what would you say to that? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I know I was given a lot of credit or have been given a lot of credit for ushering in a new style, but, uh, I felt like all I was really doing is just like copying like the new Japan junior style. Um, I felt like that's what I was doing, but in, in all fairness, um, I wasn't really trying to be Jushin Liger or anybody like that. Uh, there were a handful of guys, um, right in that transitionary period when I was coming out of, um, like, you know, being a wrestling fan into an actual wrestler and trying to figure out my niche because at the time I was like super small. I was like 165 pounds soaking wet, um, you know, 5'10", um, you know, butt white, uh, not really like, you know, no real muscle at all. And, um, and at the time when I was, when I was coming up 95, uh, was when I first started to actually, uh, be on shows, but I was training sometime before then. So the uh, wrestling was a lot different by that time. But anyway, the point was, is there's a number of wrestlers that I was, um, big on at the time. And I was trying to take elements of all of them together and really kind of like, and, and I think that's all I was really doing. I was just taking a piece or pieces of people that I loved, like, uh, uh Regal, absolutely loved Regal, uh, Ultimo Dragon, Dean Malenko, um, Kurt Henning, um, uh, Great Muda, right? Like there was all these different influences. Um, and, and funny as it may sound, um, most people would know Raven, right? Um, but, um, I was a fan of his work when he used to wrestle as Scotty the Body. And mm. so this just showing my age, right? And so like there were things and elements uh, like I was really big on movements in the ring um, and how things connected into, into moves. And so like, I would look at like small little movements like that about guys and just the way they would carry themselves in the ring. Um, a lot of the guys I named guys with like, you know, uh, little to no wasted movement. And so I really tried to adopt those type of things. And, and um, at the time I was just doing stuff. I was small and I was just doing stuff that, <clears throat> You know, like uh, maybe guys weren't doing or it just along with the character and uh, my willingness to travel everywhere for, you know, two bucks. Um, it, it just um, it just uh, caught on. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm super thankful for it. Um, you know, it was a cool experience overall. And uh, I think I get a lot more credit than I actually deserve, to be honest, Uh because like, as an example, like, like they say, like reckless youth, right. And right away it came to mind, like, oh, I do all these moves, these high flying moves. 
And um, I didn't do that many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I was really big. I, uh, probably if you ever look back on stuff, like I was really big on, um, on defensive wrestling. Uh, so the counters and reversals and like all this, what I would call is the dance uh, before I would actually do a, a move or leading up to a move. And I was really big on those type of things. And all, and then the character in and of itself. So the reckless youth had a lot to do about that uh, anti-establishment, um, uh, you know, against authority, any type of authority figure that was uh, the character too. And yeah, I was just trying to get away from the uh, reckless youth uh, moniker, um, that name. Uh, the expectation or the hope was that when I was in developmental, that I would have been. Um, uh, I would have received some new gimmick and I would have been able to step away from the reckless youth character because um, I, I was getting old. So <laughs> I was getting old, too old to use reckless youth. Uh, but uh, it, it seems I couldn't shake it. And um, so when I came out of developmental, uh, not long after I came out of developmental, I got injured really bad. And uh, I, I had a really bad fall working a match with uh, Jimmy Rave in Florida. Uh, for the NWA, uh, I can't remember. It was some type of tournament. I can't remember what it was. If it was like the junior heavyweight, light heavyweight, or was it a heavyweight tournament? I can't remember which one it is. I, I know you guys search through stuff out there. I know there's video out there. But uh, I went to do a move out to the floor, um, and uh, Rave stepped out of the way, and I hit the floor, and I was, like, paralyzed for, um, uh, man, probably 10 seconds, and it felt like 10 years. Wow. Uh, and, uh, I was out for a good year, year and a half. I didn't think I was going to wrestle again. And that was right around the time where I opened Jakara along with, uh, Mike Quackenbush. And when I went up doing that, uh, I started, you know, working out a little bit more with the guys doing some more things, keeping it pretty simple. Uh, got, uh, got in shape during that time as well. And, um, and then tried to come back after that time, like rebranding myself, stepping away from the reckless youth character and into that Tom Carter character. Uh, well, it was, it was the technician and, uh, that was Gabe's idea from ring of honor. And, um, and I was, I was starting a program in ring of honor where they were having, it was, they were doing the pure division and I was going to be involved pretty heavily in that. <clears throat> Some things shifted around, didn't wind up working out. And, and I think, uh, by 2003, I was pretty much, done with like active competition i came back here and there and i did some things like in 2006 2007 and one or two things here and there after that but was pretty much done um but yeah that's so this is a long story of <laughs> sorry about that oh, no. uh, but that technician yeah it was like it was a way for me to move away from reckless youth especially because uh a lot of the guys a lot of boys in the back like that used to make fun of me all the time because i was definitely not a youth anymore <laughs> well that, that's the problem and i was that the, not reckless either <laughs> that's the problem that the young bucks have now in aw everyone's like the middle-aged bucks is what they call them <laughs> there you go yeah. there you go i will say you definitely had one of the cleanest and best frog splashes <laughs> so um uh you know it's it's funny about that uh you know so 
I obviously did not invent the frog splash, right? That that's that's pretty clear, right? I didn't invent the frog splash. Uh, it's funny because I don't remember the pay per view, but I remember seeing Art Bar do it, right? And um, so it was this pay per view. I think it was a film in California, right? And uh, Art Bar did the frog splash, and uh, this was like back in the day VHS tapes, I think, or something like that. And like if you didn't catch it, you know, or you didn't have it, like you don't remember it. And I had imagined it differently. <laughs> So I was trying to recreate uh, this frog splash and I had, I didn't even realize I wasn't even doing his frog splash until a number of years later, uh, Eddie Guerrero started to do it as a tribute to art bar. And uh, I was like, that's not the frog splash. Yeah. <laughs> and people were like, uh, it looks just like a frog. And I was like, well, then what do I do? And they were like, well, we call it a frog splash, but you just split leg thing and or whatever. And, and, so, uh, yeah, I didn't realize I wasn't doing the frog splash. <laughs> uh, at, at the risk of, uh, of uh, possibly outing someone, uh, did D'Lo Brown see your frog splash before he started doing his? So, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys know, but uh, D'Lo and I grew up together. Okay. Um, yeah, so D'Lo and I grew up together. Um, it is, I mean, it's just, it's just a crazy set of circumstances. We were backyard wrestlers and, um, and then we used to rent the ring together and along with a group of other guys. And it kind of just transitioned into this opportunity. Um, I, I mean, we, we went to high school together and, and we were on the wrestling team. He was really good. Dilo was really, really good. Um, and, uh, and I was not. <laughs> I would go and try to do like the moves you saw on TV in like amateur wrestling. And then like, I would always get in trouble, like DDT and people try to give them <laughs> neck breakers and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we wound up, uh, like having like this backyard club together. Uh, and it happened that one of the people in the club was like, do you know, there's a wrestling school right near where I live. And, and, um, and so what we did is we kind of took our wrestling club. I, I uh, contacted, it was Larry Sharp's monster factory. And I contacted Larry Sharp and I said, Hey, I got a group of my guys. Like uh, there's like 10 to 15 of us. And we'd love to just rent your ring for a couple hours and kind of like film a little show. And he thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world. And uh, he was laughing and he was like, <laughs> sure i'll charge you a hundred dollars an hour right and um and so like every month every two months at the most we would uh come in and we would pay several hundred dollars we would pony up the money and we would rent this ring to get in this ring and um after a few years of doing that um and like what would happen is is we would do it like on a saturday afternoon and the wrestling school was training people um up until early afternoon and so we would come in to kind of do one of our shows and uh, it was just for ourselves. Um, and, um, and a lot of the wrestlers would stay behind some, some of the workers would stay behind some of the trainers. And, uh, after a little while, um, seeing us at, at, like all the time, they would start getting in the ring with us and they would start showing us some things. And most of the time they weren't being nice. They were just kind of like, this is what you guys get wrong, or you don't know how to do this, or this is how you're supposed to do that. And, um, and they would beat us up sometimes and everything, you know, um, stretch us. And, uh, and that's kind of how we like slowly creeped into the business. And, uh, but D'Lo and I, we were really close. We stayed close. He, um, he wound up, uh, connecting with some people who went down to Smokey and, and, but we maintained a relationship. 
and he was so much bigger than me, all the stuff. And, and, you know, and, uh, he was in good place, right people knowing the right things. And he had the opportunity with the fed. And when he had the opportunity with fed, like so many guys, like, you know, uh, they're always taking something from somebody else in order to be over, right. Or, yeah. or to stay over and, and stuff. And uh, like, and you see something like most of the stuff that I did, you know, I took from somebody else. Right. And so like somebody wasn't doing it in the territory I was in or, or, you know, whatever, like that kind of thing. And uh, I would do it. And so, yeah, like I was doing uh, a number of different things that he picked up, but he had his own things too. Uh, but yeah, that, that frog splash was something. So it's cool. Like if I ever saw like the a video game or if I saw him on it, I would laugh. Like and I would laugh because there would be a bunch of people. Like uh, I was a big fire pro wrestling fan. Uh, if you ever heard of that game yeah, absolutely. and um, I would laugh because some of the moves that I created or invented other people would do. Right. And I would see it on the game and I was like, that's the coolest thing. Like, uh, I understand that. Uh, and I met him, you know, a number of years later, uh, Alex Shelley was a, uh, was a fan of mine. And so he did some of my moves. So one of my moves, the uh, cross-legged um, uh, Northern Lights Bomb, he wound up doing, and it was on the game. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool, right? So like sometimes when, when other people, they say imitation is the greatest form of flattery. So me seeing other people do those moves, um, some of my moves w was cool. I, I would get a bigger kick, not necessarily of the moves, but when I would see people do spots that I did. And I was like, oh man, that would be cool. And I'd see other people do like, you know, my spots, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I thought that was really cool. So, uh, but yeah, so D'Lo, yeah, I was doing that split leg frog splash. Um, and again, it wasn't even intentional. I didn't even realize I wasn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. I always thought like it was such a, like a, an interesting way to do it. And it just looked so flashy because like to have the legs whip out that way and then right. And then snap back right before you land is, I don't know. just the, the way it looks is great. D'Lo is I've noticed now uh, on recently on, on YouTube and stuff. A lot of people are do, like, they make videos of like unsung heroes of the attitude era and stuff like that. And a lot of people mm -hmm. are putting like D'Lo on there. D'Lo is very entertaining. He is such a good promo. Oh, yeah. So like, oh yeah. And he like was great in the ring and it was just crazy. Like you think about it, like guys that like helped carry the attitude era and like, you don't really name him, but like he was a huge part of it. Oh yeah. I mean, I think he was the first ever intercontinental and European champion, like a dual champion. Like one of those one. he was, a, I think it was the first ever dual, like hold, held them at the same time. I can't remember, but, uh, but yeah, it was funny. Cause we, we had, we had a similar upbringing. So to see him, uh, go on, uh, right. It's just so few make it to the top. Uh, and, and I mean, there are just thousands of incredible people, right. And their spots are so few and, uh, to see him make it, uh, it was really, really cool to see him make it. And so even if he did something that I did, it, I mean, I used to do this, um, uh, I never even knew what I called it and I kind of did it by accident, but I did this front face thing where i smack them down on their face i didn't even know what to call it and he started doing that and then next thing i started seeing everybody do it and like i thought i was cool right and so um it was always neat because then like i i almost felt like if he was performing like there a piece of me was actually performing with him and he did some pretty uh pretty awesome venues and wrestled some of like my heroes so uh that i didn't get a chance to wrestle so uh, i like a it was a huge uh, mark for uh waltman and he just had a stellar series with Waltman. 
And, um, and so like, it was almost for me, it was like, Oh, I'm there. I'm there. I'm actually working Waltman, like right to some degree. So, uh, so that was, that was, that was really neat. So that's a great attitude to have. I really like that. Uh, as opposed to like some people who, you know, might, might, might get bitter or might get angry. Uh, I'm curious, uh, do you think, especially cause you were talking about, you know, starting off in like 95, 96 and then on when it really was like, you mentioned being small, it really was like a body thing at the time like you ha- if you weren't six foot something jacked and tanned you weren't really going to be able to do anything right um no wh- i didn't wear hot stuff and they would look at me like what? you know like i'm too skinny i'm too small um yeah i'm sorry to interrupt you but oh, no. yeah like i didn't even fit any of the molds at the time and and i i want to be fair there were a lot of small guys before me right and you know there were a lot of small guys before me um you know, and, and around the time when I was there, right. But you're right. It was like just everywhere, whether it be the Indies, whether it be the big shows, like it was all about the big monsters. And, um, and so it was a lot different. Like when I came in, it was just a totally different approach. So I'm sorry, I cut you off oh, no. on that. No, even like in WCW, when they had, you know, smaller guys wrestling, like even then, like you hear nowadays, you hear, you hear about like backstage, that would be like, Oh, it's the, it's the cruiserweights. Like they, they all like dismiss them. Like, Oh, pfft. You know, so like Jericho, like fighted, like he really wanted to not be in the cruiserweight division because he was just like, <laughs> ah, and he's like, I'm six foot tall. What the hell? <laughs> um, but do what do you how do you think your career would have been different? Let's say if it started 10 years later, if you were 10 years younger at the time. Uh, so what do you mean if I started in, in like the 2000s or mid 2000s? Yeah, if you were like hitting your peak, oh, okay. like in the 2000s. Uh, like in the mid to mid two thousands or so, you know, with the kind of especially the indie boom. I, I really see that's a, you actually are in a great spot as far as like so the the micro indie boom as I call it in the early two thousands where it was like indies are big but they're not gigantic yet, and then there was a huge lull, and then all of a sudden Ring of Honor everything boom indies are back right. Uh, so you kind of went through all of that. Uh, what what would you think? Like I like I said, you know, if you were younger. Uh, when the boom started happening? So, boy, that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting question to ask. And the reason I say it is because I think if that foundation wasn't laid in the mid to late nineties, um, what you would have, I feel what you saw, um, in the, you know, early to mid to late 2000s, even what you see going on in um, the Fed over the years with the even just the size of the guys and the style shift and change um, that wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for that, um, that mid to late 90s, that path that was being blazed there. Like that was the foundation, in my opinion, for everything that came after that, right? So um, when I came in, uh, small guys were relegated to uh, the opening match uh, or getting just pummeled by like a huge guy, right? Uh, they, they might have an underdog gimmick. Uh, and that's not to say there weren't, you know, breakouts here and there, but it was usually relegated to an undergar- uh, underdog gimmick. Um, and uh, like during that time uh there were a lot of things that were at play like the internet was exploding and everything too that that really contributed to some steam behind me um giving me a lot more credit than than i actually deserved on a lot of things but um 
next thing you know, like it was unheard of for a guy that looked like me, performed like me to main event a show. Um, and so that, like that transition happened all during that time. And uh, there were just a lot of things that were, man, it was just so many things. But for me, I look at it like the foundation was built there, um, you know, for what paved the way to even potentially where we are right now. Um, not really uh, too connected to uh, wrestling in general. Sadly, uh, I, a long, long time ago, somebody told me once you get in it, it's, it, you know, it's like a magician. You, you, once you learn the tricks, right, then you're just watching to learn the person's sleight of hand, uh, mm-hmm. how they did the trick, and you can't appreciate it like, like you used to. So it's hard to look at something with fan eyes anymore. So unfortunately, over the years, just, you know, just not really too connected to wrestling to really be able to say a lot of what's going on really right now. I just hear whispers or things here and there about people in different places. But, um, I think, you know, a lot of that foundation was built in the mid to late nineties, even arguably some of the earlier nineties too, um, is what created that atmosphere. So that, you know, that availability, those possibilities in, you know, in, in those, in the two thousands and, uh, and on. So, um, I I don't really know what I could have been or where I could have been or what it would have even looked like if I started 10 years later, right? If I started 10 years later and I was, you know, 10 years younger, I, I, I don't really know. Um, well, you mentioned that I, I don't know it would be there. The base of like, you know, and then you became the technician later on and stuff like that. You know, chances are it's easy to say, oh, maybe 10 years later, your career would have been like flourished even further, but also... 10 years later, maybe because of the, uh, the industry being so friendly towards high flying or spot monkeys, as you would call them, uh, maybe you wouldn't have learned any of that technician stuff and you would have just been like, Oh, okay, I'll just do these things then. So who knows? Anything I I don't even think, I, I mean, that's even to say like, like, I don't know if there would have even been the place for the lighter weight guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it would have been probably starting the same. So like, like I was just in this crazy place too, where the internet had just boomed. Um, and, uh, there was just, it was just a lot different. Uh, it was just so much different at the time. And, uh, again, I I just don't know, like, cause what you do is you're taking it and you're just going, Hey, ring of honor starting in the early two thousands. Right. Like, yeah, I think that was built on a lot of things that got to that place. Right. Yeah. Even the smaller guys being looked at and being used. And even to this day, you know, like being used and not even people thinking about it. Right. Like that foundation was built in that, in those early, you know, in the, in the nineties, that foundation was built. So, uh, for me to even come in at that later point, like, um, you know, there was just, uh, just so many just different factors. It was like a perfect storm at that time. And, uh, you know, the business was high, um, you know, WWF was doing well, uh, WCW was doing well at the time. Uh, ECW was drawing like, like, and, and the, and, uh, the Indies were, were just exploding, right? Like, um, I, you know, wouldn't have had the access to opportunity I had to travel to where I traveled. Um, but for the fact that like, you know, like I, I would go out there to, you know, um, California big time and like, he would have big shows. He would have big shows. He'd have big names and, uh, he would draw And, uh, that was just at a time now. I mean, I don't know if that continued, but I know 
in the early 2000s, uh, after I came back from my developmental, like I saw things drop significantly, but that was right around WCW folding, being picked up by WWE. I think that was probably the worst thing ever to happen for wrestling, in my opinion. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, just the lack of competition, I think it hurt everybody everywhere. And I think the biggest losers out of all of that, I mean, obviously there were a lot of workers that got impacted negatively. A lot of friends that I knew uh, got impacted negatively, but um, really it hurt the fans the most. And, and I think, you know, the business still might be struggling, like from a fan perspective, um, like not being as big as, uh, like, uh, I mean, I can remember um, easily you could go places and pick up WWF, paraphernalia right but they would have like wcw business was so high uh at the time that they would have those sting stuffed animal like stuffed thingies pillow stuffed thingies like you like wcw was going crazy the monday night wars all that stuff was just you know like uh the business was so good and it just trickled into the independence i, I would do shows in texas they draw five thousand in um in these rodeo arenas <laughs> And like it's just the business was just up at the time, and it was it was great, and um, and 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 then there was just so much talent, um, and because of the internet, there was just that exposure of uh, the talent that people wouldn't otherwise see. I mean, now like fast forward, you got uh, YouTube and all these other things, and and so many people doing everything, uh, everything under the sun, everything imaginable, right? Like you like you know, I only saw those moves in video games when I was coming up and now people are actually doing those moves <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like a double moonsault, whoever even would yeah. think you could do something like that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, just insane. So, uh, let's go back to, uh, doing the backyard stuff. So when is the, when does the transition come into full on becoming a pro wrestler from doing backyard stuff? Uh, so I was, like backyarding, I think into like 93, 94, some point around there. So like when I was coming up, uh, the, in, in the Northeast, the, the business was, was, uh, difficult to get into, uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, there was the athletic commissions, um, in the various States. And so like, uh, like not everybody could run a show and once things, once there was the decommissioning, then you saw the explosion of schools and of uh, shows all over the place. But before that in New Jersey, there was only, there were only a few promotions you could wrestle for. And it had to be known that you trained at one of these places and you were in good standing with one of these people uh, to even be able to work another show. Right. So there, there weren't too many <laughs> things going on. And so, um, I was backyard with some friends. We were, um, we were all given the opportunity to, uh, sell X amount of tickets and we could get on the show. And, uh, that at the same, uh, at the same time we had to join the school. And, uh, so that happened for me in, uh, late 94, early 95. I think my first match was February, 1995, but unofficially i had probably been training for two years at least leading up to that um i was doing the backyarding with my friends but the uh but the workers at the monster factory 
would allow us and ask us to come on training nights and they would just use us as test dummies for everything. Um, and while they were doing that, they were showing us how to do things. And, uh, so like we were learning different things, right? Not just getting beat up, right? We were learning things we were earning respect. And so this was like, like a longer process to do everything. Um, there was another, uh, so we would kind of sneak into sharks and work out with the guys like, uh, Glenn Ruth, uh, probably my first trainer, uh, Glenn, the spider Ruth, who later went on to be headbanger thrasher. Um, there was Mosh and thrasher, uh, uh, thrasher was the one that trained me and Delo, a bunch of us. And, um, and probably first, uh, was working with him. Um, and then we stepped sideways and we, we're trying to sneak into the business, right? We're trying to sneak into the business. And um, we knew enough to know that you had to have like tights and boots. We, you know, got some old used boots and uh, Dick Worley, he used to be a referee. He had a school that was nearby in Voorhees, New Jersey. And we went over and trained over there and guys from, um, from uh, Eastern Championship Wrestling, uh, uh, Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, like that, like the Joel Hood, uh, Goodhart guys, uh, from the, uh, from the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, those guys would come over to Worley school and work out. So I would work out with like Ted Petty and, all, and it was just like, it was cheetah kid. Like I knew I was like, that's cheetah kid. <laughs> right. And this was before he was like rock a rock or anything like that. And everybody's like, it was Ted Petty. And I was like, I got to like work out with like Ted Petty, you know? And so like, that was great. And, uh, but then we came back to, um, sharps and, uh, and got the offer to start, uh, training at sharps and doing shows i did a couple shows for sharps uh, for sharp uh we got in a disagreement about money um it hurt me because then it kind of blackballed me or blacklisted me from being able to work anywhere in the area in the northeast and at the time delo had left there was a big story like part of the blackballing was because of delo had issues too right and um and he had gone down to smoky smoky folded by this time and uh he went up to stay with al snow and uh so this is like mid 90s and dealers like you can come and stay at snows uh, i'm really close with them i'm helping out with the training and you can come here and so what i would do is uh, i would travel out there and i would stay like a week and so i would come back every four six weeks and i would stay for like a week and so al snow had he had rotating classes and I would go there and I was getting like trained by Al and, uh, I was allowed to be there. But what I had to do is I had enough experience that any of his new guys, I had to carry them in their first matches, like in that area. And, um, and so I was putting guys over in, you know, around there so I could stay there and work out. And Al was, Al was just great. Like Al blew my mind. Like I, I went to Al's and like as much as I thought I knew, right? How to do everything. Al is the one that exposed me and like through like uh, machine gun, Mike Kelly up in that territory and all that, uh, exposed me to Japanese wrestling. And so I knew how to do like one reversal for, you know, one thing or another. And Al showed me like five different ways to reverse something. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> like, I felt like I was like, I knew nothing, right? Like being around Al and, um, and so like, I was able to get, like get free training and uh, put over these guys and, and then I'm learning and I'm just learning and we're watching tapes and we're going in the ring and Al had like a crash pad to practice. Like that's all I even started doing some of the flipping around. And, uh, 
next thing you know, like I was doing shows out there <laughs> and the sheet writers were writing about this guy. And like, so with, when, I, when you first start, this is showing my age. Um, when you first started in the beginning, you couldn't really have a gimmick. Uh, it was like, you were just yourself. You were really playing. And then they would see after time what your gimmick was. Well, because I was blackballed as Tom Carter, I couldn't be Tom Carter out there. And so I was able to be this reckless youth character that was, you know, all these circumstances that led to the reckless youth character, but I was able to be reckless youth out there. So they didn't know that I was Tom Carter out there doing reckless youth because all the sheet writers, it was kind of before all the, you know, internet like that, like, uh, you know, with videos and everything. And, uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm working out there all the time. And, uh, just, it was great ride out there. And next thing you know, promoters were calling me to see if I would come to the East coast. <laughs> I was like, I live, I live an hour away. I'll do the show. <laughs> I'll do the show. Uh, you know, it was a little difficult when I came back to the East Coast because because uh, I was still in trouble with Sharp, and then that finally got smoothed over, and uh, and I was allowed to work for a lot of uh, like the Jersey, PA, Delaware, even some areas in New York. So the, the it, business was a lot different then, um, and also. Um, but if it wasn't for me going out there in the 90s and uh, I'm sorry, uh, in the uh, like uh, mid to late 95 is when I was like working all the time out there. And then that gave me an opportunity to come back late 95, early 96. And then I was doing two territories. So uh, I would work um, the Northeast and then I was working the Midwest. And so like, uh, by like 96, like through 96 through 97, I was juggling territories. And then that just opened the door for other territories, like going down South, going further out West. Um, and it, you know, and I, I, I was a huge fan of Waltman and before he went to, um, before he went to WWF as one, two, three, uh, one, two, three kid, he, uh, I keep saying WWF, I'm showing my age too. Um, he, uh, worked uh, a bunch of different indies and I used to open up the magazines and like, I think it was like the wrestler all-star wrestling. They used to have the rankings from all the different indies and stuff mm. along the big companies and all the different indies. And you would see Waltman in just about every company around the country. And I remember being like, I want to be like him. And so that was my big motivation to go everywhere for two bucks, um, you know, and just get on a show. And I was like, if I can get on a show, there's a strong possibility I can get back on the show, but I just got to, the hardest part was getting onto the show and especially my size and all that stuff. It was hard to just get onto a show. But once I got on the show, uh, I was usually asked back and also, um, and, and so that's kind of how that, how it grew from there. And how would you compare, uh, the crowds in the different territories and did you find you had to work anything, any style that was different? Did you find that you had to like play a certain, uh, attitude to the crowd like what what how did they respond differently when i was coming up what i was doing was kind of so new that most of the time um it wasn't like i had to do anything different um i was just the biggest thing was uh if somebody was doing something like me uh or whoever i was paired with um however we could work out a good dance that would entertain the people. Cause we had to be conscious of where we were in the show. I mean, when I was first starting out, I would be open and match, you know, or second match. So can't be an explosion on that. Uh, Cause then like, if I'm, if, if I'm undercutting 
the matches above me, well, then I'm definitely not getting called back, right? Not, definitely not getting asked back and all. So um, that culture really shifted and changed later, right? And so um, so I was just kind of doing things a lot different. And, uh, um, and, and, and really, it was just so much different that, um, you know, it wasn't like I had to do things differently for people. Most of the time, I was just asked to slow down a little bit. Uh, I was moving a little too fast mm. in some cases. And then over time, it became customary for that pace. And more and more people that I started working with were working that pace. And so then it became, you know, just uh, more adopted. And so like even the culture of the crowds, they would be like, okay, these are the big guys. And here comes the little guys. And the little guys are going to be a different speed than the big guys. And it's just going to work a little bit differently. But um, when I worked, I always tried to... Um, not just do flashy moves, but I always tried to do just funny things. Like, uh, I, uh, I used to steal spots from, uh, the, uh, midget wrestlers all the time. And, uh, and I would use them. So most of my comedy spots and things like that were all just taken from midget wrestlers. And so like, if there were ever any midget wrestlers on the show, I would, I wouldn't do their, any of their spots like out okay. of respect. Right. But, uh, like a, most of my comedy was taken from them. And so I always tried to do like entertaining, like it wasn't just about the moves. It was also, I'd always try to make people laugh a little bit in the match. Um, I was mostly a heel because I was going under and I would just, my job was to make the baby face look good. And uh, so I didn't have a problem with um, making myself look really, really stupid. And the more outlandish I would be, <clears throat> the uh, more it actually got over. Uh, I took that cue from uh, Rick Rude. Ravishing Rick Rude, probably one of the, man, that guy, his, like, I could live just on the way he sold things. And what's amazing about him, a lot of people don't know, he started out pretty early as a mask wrestler. So he had to learn how to sell with his body because he couldn't sell with his face. And once the mask came off, he sold with his body and his face. Wow. And his facial expressions were so outrageous, right? And so I would just like a lot of the stuff I would do, I would just model that. And so that's what, like, I was, I was just a bunch of pieces of a bunch of different people that I loved and all. And, um, it's, fun, and it's so, funny like, you mentioned yeah. that because I know you said you're, you're out of tune with wrestling culture now, but there's actually a whole thing on wrestling Twitter where people post like compilations of Rick Rude selling atomic drops. And it's like a, it's like a big, were amazing. Yeah. And I, you could just do like, for me, like for me, like you say, like, uh, were regions different regions really weren't different for me to perform for. It depended on, um, the demographics of the crowd. Mm. That was a big thing for me. Right. So, um, and then over time, the culture of the business changed where the fan became smarter and smarter and more demanding. Right. And I don't mean to make that sound like in a bad way. Right. Uh, but they just became more demanding. Right. So <clears throat> and, and, and just shift it. Right. So like probably some of my best people that I like to perform in front of were kids. I love to do kid shows and any time that I could do a benefit or something uh, that was kid based, I loved making a fool out of myself in front of kids. Uh, I worked this one show. It was a Toys for Tots show, uh, UWC in New Jersey. And I used to work that year after year. And I used to do the silliest stuff on those shows. And I didn't mind making myself look like a fool. I can remember doing a spot where um, 
the one guy he brought in a, a blow up thing was like his manager. Um, guy lupus i think it was him he brought in like a blow-up doll and that was his manager it was a girl blow-up doll it was supposed to be his manager uh it was supposed to be a kid show uh <laughs> and um in the match uh we, we were doing this like tag match or something like that and i see i just think about these things that make me laugh but um uh towards the finish uh he was laying down on the ground and somebody pulled him out of the way and laid the uh laid the uh the blow-up dial down and i did the moonsault onto the blow-up dial and then i like like you know like real funny with my face i hooked the leg and i'm like selling it really hard and <laughs> the kids are all laughing and then like the ref's not you know not counting and i'm like acting like what's wrong and i hold up the uh the uh blow-up dial and uh, the other worker su- like i'm looking at the blow-up dial and he super kicked the threw the blow-up dial onto me and i fell down and had the blow up dial top me and the ref counted three and like the kids ate that up and like I was crying, you know, and I love doing stuff like that, but I loved it as much as working like, you know, in, in front of like really smart fans where, you know, like uh, <clears throat> you had to work for everything. Right. Like, so, so like both of those dynamics were great and all, and, uh, and the crowds were always just so in- interesting everywhere I went. Um, the crowds weren't 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 the challenge as much as it as it was sometimes with the workers. <laughs> <laughs> so, like when I first went down south, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling. Oh no, no, it's all again. So when I first went down south under developmental, <clears throat> it was a it was really different for me, and um, they were still doing like like kayfabe locker rooms and things like that. You like get the finish when you get in the ring. And in most cases they wouldn't even tell you to finish. It would just be like, who's going over. And, uh, you would work it all in the ring. And, um, that was well, very different for me. Like now I would work with guys like, and because I had traveled so much, um, it's not like I would work with different guys a lot. And so I would meet them, you know, an hour or a few hours before the match. It's not like we could really script, you know, everybody had a certain amount of training so we could work, work through things. And, um, so I, I, it's not like I would, I was doing like completely scripted matches at all. Uh, we would work a finish, maybe the beginning, the turnaround, and, and then we'd have all the filler. But um, Memphis was like Memphis or being down in that territory. I say Memphis, but being down in that territory, um, they didn't work like that. And um, and so that, that was like a culture shock for me going down there and really trying to like just follow somebody else and listen to them and then be conscious of the crowd um, at the same time. So, uh, so that was a neat learning experience. As much as I hated my time in developmental, th- there were good experiences that later I can reflect back on and say like, Oh, that was cool. But at the time I just did not want to be there. Uh, I hated being there. I didn't, you know, um, and, uh, there were a lot of promises that didn't come through for uh, who knows all the reasons. Uh, I'm sure I, I, I contributed to at least half of them. And, um, you know, I, I just didn't want to be there, but it was kind of thing that later I, I, I appreciated a lot more later. Um, but a lot of it I didn't like. Um, and so, uh, so that was a hard time on me, but like, like the time with like Regal, like Regal, when Regal came there, um, Regal was one of like my heroes. And, uh, I don't know if you ever learned this, but well, you so see, you're in the business. So, you know, but like, uh, when I was coming up, you always learn like, like you never mark out for one of the boys in the yeah. back. You never mark out. 
uh, you run the risk of getting beat up if you, if you mark out and I'm little, so like they would definitely beat me up. And so, um, you know, uh, you run that risk, right? So you learn, you like never mark out, you never sell it or anything like that. You're, you've been respectful to that and the other thing. So I always learn that. Right. But, uh, I was in Memphis and I was in Memphis for a few months and then Regal showed up <clears throat> and Regal showed up the first night he showed up. I walked right up to him and I was like, my name's Tom Carter and I'd like you to teach me everything. You know, I'm a huge fan. And he actually remembered me. He was like, I remember you when you came and did your first tryout at WWF. And I was like, what? It was at the time when I think he was the man's man or something. Yeah. The first time he came or whatever. And uh, I was like, I couldn't believe he remembered me. And uh, that turned out to be a great relationship and all uh, uh, for the time that I was there. But, um, but yeah, like uh, th there were, like I said, I can look back. There were a lot of good things, but at the time I just didn't want to be there. Uh, I'm incredibly introverted. A lot of people don't believe it. I'm incredibly introverted. Um, so uh, like I could perform, but usually the lead up to the performance and afterwards I was like really, really drained. And a lot of people were just like, what's wrong with them? Cause mm. like my character, my character wasn't the real me. Uh, it was just a character. It's who I wanted to be and who I'm not really. <laughs> and, um, so and, and so like being there was tough. Yeah. So I'm curious, how does that, uh, we always like to also go into like the social aspect of wrestling, you know, the, you know, the, you know, we, the, it's called the indie handshake for a reason. You know, you gotta, you gotta shake everyone's hand. You gotta go, you know, blah, blah. So as a person who's introverted, how is that when you're like, you know, you show up, so you gotta say hello to everyone. You gotta like do all this. Like how, how does that like mentally? Well, you know, it's funny too, because, uh, over the years, like, um, I may have become started to become known in like indie circles, but if I was ever anywhere around like a bigger person, like a bigger name person, they didn't know who, who's reckless youth, right? They didn't even care who I was. Right. Um, and so like you would always be respectful. Right. And it's so funny. Like you go up and do the handshake and they'd be like, yeah, yeah. like, you know, I'm just, I'm just some guy that, you know, wants to be in their spot. And um, so you would always do those pleasantries, but most of the time, those pleasantries, like uh, they were just that they were pleasantries and uh, most people really didn't acknowledge you or anything. If, if somebody was shepherding you around, that might've been a little different. Right. So like uh, D Dila was um, you know, he got me into the company along with a few other people, right? Like uh, it was a big push and some circumstances, things changed. Terry Taylor was there for a minute uh, at the time. And uh, Dilo was close with Terry and Terry liked me. He came from WCW at the time. They had some smaller guys there. He knew about me through uh, through Pete Gruner, uh, Billy Kidman, um, uh, uh, Kid Flash, like uh, all the different names. Uh, and so he kind of knew me a little bit, had heard about me, and uh, um, and so that kind of worked in. But like, so so I'd say that because Dilo would take me around the people he was close with, and he would be like, "Oh yeah, you know, this is this is my friend Tommy," and. Uh, and depending on how much they, you know, looked at him or whatever, they might be nice or whatever. Right. So, um, but it was a lot different when Regal, when I was, when I was, uh, uh, being mentored by Regal, Regal had so much respect from everybody and Regal would be like, you know, this kid's good. He's, he's one of my boys. And like Triple H would be like, I'm hearing really good things about you. You know what I mean? Benoit, like uh, Jericho, all that. Like it, it was regal, right? It was totally mm -hmm. different, right? And I'm not, you know, uh, putting down D at all. Uh, it's just like, it was like, you know, it was just a different time, right? Like 
when D was introducing me to people, he was still kind of on the way up, establishing himself. Regal, this was later. He was so well established. People knew him. It was just, it was just different and, and all. But um, most of the time, most of the guys were pretty much to themselves, right? You're in like, it's so hard in the big show. It's so hard. Uh, you got to be at the building at like noon and they don't, you don't start working until like the show doesn't start until eight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these guys are like going crazy, you know? Um, and so like most of the time, like it was just, it was pretty quiet. You know, you, you exchange your pleasantries and most people are sleeping or trying to find ways to, you know, spend their time. It wasn't really that big. Indies were a little bit different, but Indies, you know, depending where you were, you still had to show up early. Um, it was difficult, um, you know, just for some of those things, right? Like, um, you know, just interacting with the different people and like, and that was the thing, like, it's easy to be introverted and, uh, and people be like, Oh, that person's a snob or, Oh, that person is stuck up. That person is a jerk. And it was just like, I wasn't really like the character was just a character and it was easy to hide behind that character because that wasn't the real me. Right. It was easy to be this character that I thought I should be or I wanted to be, but really wasn't. And uh, so a lot of people would get accustomed to the character. Right. And then they would see or meet me and they would be like, what's the deal? What's wrong with this guy? (laughs) Why is he so quiet? Why is he so reserved? Why is he so held back? You know, uh, why doesn't he want to talk to us? And then I would get in the ring and I'd be real loud, crazy. And I'd do interviews real, really, really loud, crazy. But, uh, but yeah, most of the time it was, it was really hard. So, uh, so a lot of times those perceptions were difficult and I think I got labeled, you know, a few times different ways, by different people and, you know, that's tough, you know, but there's not really much you can do about that and all, um, you know, especially if somebody gets an impression of you, there's, it's hard to be like, no, I promise I'm really not like that. Yeah. It's hard to undo that, you know, sometimes. So, so going back to doing the de- developmental deal. Uh, so how does uh, I, I kind of love going to the, like the weird minutia of these things. Like, so you get a tryout, you know, how does the tryout go? And then what do they say to you when they're, you're actually going to be offered a deal? Like, what is what are some of the things that they're promising or saying, uh, critiquing any of that kind of stuff? So, uh I had a dark match or two. So I got asked up and had a dark match or two. I was one of the few guys at the time that didn't do. Um, so some of the guys would go up, they would do like a dark match or they would do job matches because they had like jobbers at that time and they would do job matches. I think I was too small to do any of that. So it wouldn't have even mattered. But um, I would go up. I did a couple dark matches. I got asked to come up. Um, Cornette was, uh, uh, was an advocate for me at one time. And uh, he got me up there. Um, I don't know all the circumstances around it, but he got me up there once or twice. And um, it really amounted to nothing. I came in, was introduced to a few people. I could tell that, um, you know, like I definitely felt like, you know, like they would just look at me and they would be like, (laughs) number one, everybody was like this, Mm. (laughs) looking down at me. Right. And uh, they would just once over me and be like, "Eh." and like, you know, I got a funny story like uh, it was like uh, Jim Ross. I was being introduced to Jim Ross and he just totally blew me off. And like, but like, uh, how do I look marketable to him? Right. I didn't look marketable to him. I was smaller than him. Right. So um, 
and 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 uh, it, it, you know, I went up, I did a couple tryouts. It didn't materialize to anything. And uh, man, I think it was like a year went by, and suddenly they started talking about these like uh, the training school in Stanford. And uh, I can't even remember how I got asked to go up to the first one, but uh, whatever it was, I got asked to go up to the first one. Go up to the first one, and um, I go up there. It was more or less overseen by Bruce Pritchard. And um, I'm trying to remember, Tom Pritchard was there training everybody. Both of the ones I went to, Pritchard, Tom Pritchard was there training. But the first one was, was uh, uh, Bruce Pritchard was overseeing it. The second one, Terry Taylor was overseeing it. So I went to the first one, and they did something with you that you, like you had some type of no compete if you went up there for three months, I think it was. Um, and cause it was so tense at that time. And I never, um, I never had a dream of working for the WWF and I really didn't want to work for the WWF. I was actually trying to get a job for with WCW cause they had the smaller guys there. And I thought I had a better opportunity there. WWE was still like the land of the giants. Yeah. And I was like, the chance of me getting in there slim. And if I get in there, all they're just going to do is destroy me. Turns out I got there and they loved me talking. They just wanted me to be a manager. And I'm like, I want to be a worker. <laughs> um, so, um, so like, uh, so I went and I did the first tryout and, um, Pritchard, uh, Bruce Pritchard was just like, um, you know, like, ah, not going to happen. And, um, and so I just drove home, <laughs> uh, didn't think anything of it. And then, uh, right about like that cutoff time. Like I said, there was some type of three month thing. I think that you signed or something right around that. Suddenly there was this transition and, and, um, D'Lo was doing really well. He's talking to Taylor. Taylor was there. Taylor knew about me. Taylor was somehow involved in it. Taylor called me up. I like you. Let's get you up here. I want to see you. I'm hearing really good things about you. I'm hearing about you from a few different people, from some of my friends down in Atlanta. And now I'm here and we're going to change some things around. And, um, he's like, I want you to come. And I he was like, I know your first experience wasn't great. Cause I think I did some interviews or talked about it. Just, it just wasn't really anything. And, uh, he was like, I know you don't have a good impression on him, but why don't you come up here? And so I came up and at the end, Taylor was like, I'm, you're going to have your contract in a week or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, really? And uh, I was like, are you sure? <laughs> Cause we were even at the camp and I was like the smallest guy at the camp. And, um, and I literally was just like, are you sure I'm going to get a contract? And I really didn't believe it until I got the contract because I kept like, cause I went home and I was like, yeah, they're saying I'm going to get this contract. Like, I don't know. I'm really going to get this contract or not. And lo and behold, I got the contract and it was just, you know, at the camp, he's like, yep, we're going to sign you. And, um, we're not too sure what we're going to do with you. And that's kind of like, it was just kind of in limbo for a little while. And, uh, not long after I signed the contract, uh, I knew that uh, Bruce Pritchard wasn't, didn't really like me really that much. Like I just didn't fit the model. And I knew I was there because of Taylor. And not long after I got signed, uh, Taylor left again. Uh, Taylor went back mm -hmm. to Atlanta. And I was like, oh, no. Like, the, I'm, you know, I'm not going to either do anything or I'm going to be tortured, right? Because I shouldn't be there. And, uh, and so there were all kinds of rumblings about what was going to be done with me, not done with me or whatever. And, um, and they wound up sending me to, to Memphis. Uh, originally they were going to send me to Puerto Rico. And, um, there was one guy down in Puerto Rico that I knew Jeff Bradley. 
and our C Bradley. Um, and that they were going to send me down there. I don't remember what happened that they didn't send me there. Uh, but I was like, cause I was like, I do not want to go to Puerto Rico. I had been to Puerto Rico before and like introverted language barrier, all that. Like, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm never going to leave my room. It's going to be <laughs> terrible. Uh, and, um, and, and they wound up sending me to Memphis, which I was really surprised about. And then the talk was just like, uh, don't buy a place. Don't stay, you know, don't get comfortable. You're not going to be here very long. You're going to be on, you're going to be in TV on TV in three months at the absolute most. I was like, what? And so I was kind of surprised by it. And, uh, so I, along with like one or two other people, you know, I found out that were explicitly told that like other people were told, like, get a place, this, that, and the other thing. And some of the other people were like, why aren't you getting a place? And I didn't want to say anything because I didn't (laughs) know. Yeah, I didn't know the whole deal. And so like found out from some other people, they were like, I was told not to get a place. And I'm like, Oh, you too. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Like Ronnie Killings, you know, he was told like, don't get a place. Right. And we wound up being there for a year. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Uh, And so like, it's just, you know, it was just madness. And I think towards the end for us, like uh, uh, me and Ronnie, we were pretty close when we were there and uh, traveled around a lot together. And, um, and like when I wasn't hanging around with, uh, with Ronnie, uh, I was hanging around with Regal and Ronnie, he would go home a lot. Uh, he didn't live too far away so he could go home. I was too far away to go home. And also it wasn't, it wasn't that easy. Um, and, uh, and so that those times I would hang around, I would hang out with Regal and that just, that just made it all right for both of us. But we ended up being in developmental and that's just, they were just like, Oh, you're not going to be here very long. And, you know, um, and I went up being in developmental all the way up to the end of my contract. They wanted to resign me and, um, they gave me the big talk because I was kind of like, I don't want to be in Memphis. Uh, nothing is going on in Memphis. Like nobody is really coming down. Nobody's really talking about anything going on in Memphis. Um, <clears throat> I just felt like just, I just like, there was no attention on Memphis and uh, I heard there was a lot of attention in OVW. And so I wanted to, and I knew less, I wanted to go up there. Uh, I heard that Malenka was actually training people too up there. And so I was like, I want to go up there, I'm gonna train. I get to train under Regal now, and Regal was leaving and uh, he was going back up. And I was like, if I go to train with Malenko, this is like, this would be awesome, you know? And, uh, and so I wanted to go over there and they said no. And they were trying to do something with ECW for a minute. And so I asked to go over to ECW and they said no. And I didn't want to stay in Memphis. And I was like, you know what? I'll just go back to the Indies. I'll go back to my regular day job and work the Indies on the See, weekend. And they ECW were like, you would have sure been a great fit. Do that? Uh, they didn't want, they didn't. So they had a couple of guys. I don't know enough about the relationships, but I tried to go to OVW and they said no. And, and then I tried to like go like, to ECW because that was like home for me. And I was like, Oh, I can go back home. I can be home during the week or whatever. And, but there, I, I don't know what the relationship was there. And they were, they had a couple guys there, but then they were like, no, I don't, I don't think that one lasted very long. Like Puerto Rico, like Bradley was in Puerto Rico forever all by himself. Right. So it was just weird. Like how they had certain people in certain pockets. They had like a small organization in California when I was there with like Cena was at uh, UPW. Um, yeah. So like they had like these weird pockets. And so they were just like, no, we don't, you're staying in Memphis. 
and I didn't want to stay, <laughs> I didn't want to stay in Memphis. And I, cause I just felt like I'm just going to die here in Memphis. Like, it's like, like, you know, like all I could think is like, like, uh, the world was passing me by when I was in Memphis. Like at least if I got back on the independence, um, I could, you know, I could keep up with the independence and then maybe get a look at somebody else. And <clears throat> I really only committed to giving them a year anyway, in my own mind, because I didn't think I would be there. I didn't think I would stay there. And um, I, I didn't think I didn't see a future in WWE. Um, and uh, right at the end, I was I was trying to parlay something to transition into WCW. Uh, Taylor was back there. Um, I knew a few of the guys, more guys I knew were showing up there. And, um, you know, I was trying to work something to go over there. And, um, at the time I left, I had to non-compete for 90 days. And so I couldn't get picked up, especially because they wanted to put me on TV right away and I couldn't do it. And then literally within that 90 days, they did the hiring freeze in WCW and then in the first 30 days and then 30 days after that, it was sold. And I was like, oh man. I can't yeah. like all I wanted to do. And like, I like, and, and by then I kind of was like, it wasn't like I could go beg for a job back at, uh, at WWE. So it was just kind of like, eh, <laughs> yeah. I burned that bridge, you know? And, uh, and also, cause they gave me the big talk, like, Oh, any people would die to be in your spot in, in WWE. And, um, I was just like, I'll just go back to the Indies. I, I, I'll work in the Indies. I, I, you know, I could do that. I could, and I have more control over myself. I was more of an indie guy too, to be completely honest, Paul. Like I just, I just didn't, <clears throat> the, the, the steam, uh, kind of carried me further in some cases than I really wanted to go, uh, to be completely honest. Like, uh, I loved indie wrestling. Um, I loved the intimacy. Um, uh, I loved the, uh, the element of control too, of my own circumstances to a degree. I could go where I want to go, when I want to go, how I want to go kind of thing. Right. Like, uh, <clears throat> I could move around. I could do those kind of things. I could work with certain people and, you know, um, whereas there I had really no control and, um, <clears throat> and, 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 and again, like I just never saw myself as a, as a WWE guy, um, you know, uh, 10 years later, 20 years later, maybe <laughs> 15 yeah. years later, maybe, but like that was, you know, way before me. So, uh, I mean, or way before, you know, I was way before all that was going on. And so, um, you know, uh, so true to me, I even thought I'll just go back to Indies, you know, I yeah. like working in the Indies, but, uh, by the time I went back to the Indies, uh, there was a lot that changed in that time, especially WCW fell. Like there was a lot of craziness going on and, uh, decommissioning in a lot of states and like it, it, the culture changed a lot afterwards. Um, and, uh, I wound up getting married, uh, having my first child. And that's one of the, that's the big catalyst for me to, to exit out of the business. Um, I got injured and I was out for a little while. I came back, I tried to come back, but the injury would, would creep up on me every once in a while. And it would just kind of paralyze me for several days. And so I was like, I can't like, I got to like feed my family. I got a, yeah. <laughs> got a kid here and, you know, and so it was, it was a little bit of a challenge. So I feel like, man, I'm just, I feel like I'm just rambling forever on you. Oh no, it's okay. Stories. Uh, speaking of, uh, you mentioned, you know, the contract and then the hiring freeze. I mean, Michael Modest and Christopher Daniels, they both got contracts and then immediately just got, bye. See you later. 
love those guys too. And there, those are two guys that I had a tremendous amount of respect for as well. And, um, and, and, you know, like I used to talk to Daniels and Daniels would just be like, what's going on? How's it going on down there? I don't know. Like this is, I'm shifting back and forth here. I'm trying to work this, that there. And, um, uh, you know, he was definitely more ambitious than I was in many respects. Um, but, uh, you know, like, and, and, but, and I looked at modest, like modest, like just such an awesome talent. And here you go, a guy that like went over to Noah and Masawa himself, like one of the legends of wrestling is like, we want more Americans like this. Right. And, yeah. I, and it was just like, I mean, he went over there and just had, you know, so much fame, you know, over there. And, um, you know, just modest, just stellar, um, you know, Daniel's another stellar guy. Uh, I don't know if, I don't think modest is competing anymore. Right. But I don't know if Daniel's is still competing. He actually, uh, he just, he's wrestling for all elite wrestling. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, he's he's like uh, he's with like the head of talent relations though, so he like wrestles once in a while and like he's doing mm. that. I think they're gearing up for a retirement angle soon because mm. they just had him yeah, like, like. I mean, this go stellar athlete and yeah. I mean, it's stellar, and um, you know, like you know, that's it, just just so hard. That's why some people sometimes people just give me, you know, they ask me like, oh, what can you, advice can you give me? You know, every once in a while somebody trips across me and. And asks, you know, like, hey, I've heard of you. Can you give me any advice? And I and I usually tell them, like, if you're getting into this to be a superstar, to have an action figure, or be on a video game, like, don't don't be doing that because of that, right? Because the chances of it happening is, is slim. Um, you can be awesome, and it doesn't really matter. Like, there's so many other factors that play into it. Like, do it because you love it, and that's why I loved indie wrestling. Like, I just love being a part of indie wrestling, and um, my heart was for indie wrestling. Like. I fell in love with indie wrestling, you know, um, my later years in high school. And like, that's all I really thought about doing. And then next thing you know, there was all this steam and I was just kind of like, Oh, I guess I'll just go. This carries me here. I'll, I'll go here. And it, like, it I'd be crazy not to. Right. And, and, and there was a time where I thought to myself, like, I would have never thought to myself, like, Oh, I, I would be a professional wrestler as a career. And uh, still, even in the back of my mind, even when I had it as a career, I was just like, this isn't going to last that long. Like, I see so many guys I know that are on top for a minute and uh, and, and then not. Um, the life expectancy for some, you know, it, you know, for, for, for wrestling, you know, there aren't a lot that they get a lot of mileage out of it. And so that's, that would, to me, I'm just more pessimistic. I'm, I mean, I'm an accountant for goodness sake. Right. So, uh, you know, like what a safe job. Right. And so, um, you know, like a, a lot of that lingered in the back of my mind. And like I said, the other side of it is, is I just never saw myself as a WWE guy. I never felt comfortable there. Like I'd go to Titan towers and I'd be like, I don't know if I can breathe in here. I don't feel mm -hmm. right about even breathing in here. Right. Like, Oh, you can go to the cafeteria and eat for free. And I felt like I didn't feel like I should. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't even use the bathroom. I'll just wait to go to the hotel. You right? know, like I just never felt right. <laughs> yeah. You know, you spoke about like, Oh, uh, guys that like, Oh, don't get into it because you expect to, you know, automatically make it and do that. Like if you would have asked me like in the early two thousands, like guys like Christopher Daniels, his gimmick, the fallen angel gimmick on the Indies, I was like, Oh yeah, put this right in the WWE. It's works. Like it's, I was like, this is perfect. Why isn't he signed? What's going on? And then even like his longtime tag team partner, uh, Frankie Kazarian is a dude that I thought, WWE all the way. Like I looked at him. Like look at him. He's got the look. He's got he's got the right move set. Like he looks like a star. He acts like a star. And then it just never kind of materialized. And it's just like 
it, it really is like a weird gamble. It is, really is. And, you know, and like because of the culture now, uh, a lot of those guys could be are revered, right? A lot of those guys are revered. Um, like they're looked at, they have a cult following or a lot of people because of just the information age we're in, they could see them, see them and they can just be like, they were awesome or they are awesome or they can do that. And they, they can have a large amount of respect. But like, there was a time like when I was coming up that like the unsung heroes, like Barry Horowitz, mm. that guy could freaking go. And I mean, if you ever saw his stuff in GWF, and all, I mean, when he was just able to be unleashed in GWF down in Texas, like it was just great. Like, and some of those guys, like there were guys like, um, like when I was coming in, they would always say like, there are guys that, uh, are over. And then there's other guys that their, their job is to put people over and make people look good. Right. Because there were always like these guys, these class of guys that really weren't great le- wrestlers, but they had like a look and they would get a push but the other guys had to make them look like superstars. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was a place for that. So like, if anything, I thought like, man, like I could, the best case scenario I could be in the WWF world, right. Would probably be one of those, like, you know, early to mid 90 goofy gimmicks, right? Like all remember they came out with all these goofy gimmicks, right? Yeah. Like some great wrestlers that you know they wanted the enhanced jobbers and they threw all these goofy gimmicks on like like scores of these guys that were just great wrestlers but like there was something for some reason they they didn't get the push and um and so i thought like if anything i would probably be relegated into that space maybe if i somehow stayed in the company uh they wanted me to be a talker because they liked they liked me talking um and, uh, and, and I just, that was the one creative idea that they came back with that I was just kind of like, no, not really feeling that at all. And that was like, kind of like a scarlet letter on me that I, I was already a troublemaker as yeah. it was. And, um, I was just a troublemaker cause I would just wouldn't do certain things and I would get in trouble for it. I was always getting in trouble in Memphis. I feel bad. I look back now and you know, the promoter, the guy was running at Terry golden. I was like, I was, I was such a troublemaker for him. I was such a troublemaker for him. I used to, I used to mess up TV shows all the time, like goofing around and stuff and ribbing people. I would just, uh, (laughs) just get in trouble. And, uh, I would, I would always wind up getting in trouble. And then they would just put me in with like, I had to do like one time I got in trouble for messing around and uh, they, they made me do a program with Viscera. And uh, so you get little me, Viscera. <laughs> and so they like, uh, and so they put me in this one match. I, I was pretty sure I was getting in trouble. And um, I'm working Viscera. And Viscera was, he was so big. There was just like, like he wasn't trying to hurt me, but like he was just so big and I was so little. And um, I know you've had to see like the Wizard of Oz, right? Mm-hmm. And like in the beginning, when the house falls on the Wicked Witch, and it's just her feet. So he would always he would do the splash finishers. So the first night he does the splash finisher on me, right? And literally, I'm eclipsed underneath of him, and all you can see is my two boots. Oh my god, sticking out from underneath. And they thought in the back that was the funniest thing in the world. So they put me in a program with them for like a month. Oh, Jesus. And so every night, because when we were in Memphis, when we first got in Memphis, we weren't working that much. But towards the end, like, you know, last handful of so months, uh, we were working like 25, 26 days uh, a month. And 
and that included TV tapings. And so sometimes we were working like three and four times in TV tapings. So we were like dying. And, uh, and so then I, I got put in a program with this killing me and, it, and i was like the underdog right and so i was yeah. this little guy and it was like and he was huge and uh and yeah and so that was the funniest thing it would just be like the you know the house and it would just be just my feet sticking out yeah. um i want to go into uh chikara and how yeah. that came about uh because you mentioned earlier about fans smartening up and i think what ended up happening is a lot of promotions they ended up having to either create gimmicks or do programs that were kind of tongue in cheek because they knew fans were smart and they were like, okay, well, how can we play that to a strength? And that's kind of, to me, how something like Chikara comes about. I'll let you go ahead and though explain. So I can't take any creative, uh, I can't take uh, any creative credit for, uh, for what went on in Chikara. That was all the brainstorm of Mike Quackenbush. Um, all of that character development. Uh, he was a huge fan of Osaka pro. And so he was trying to, it, it felt like he was trying to do like an Osaka pro kind of thing in the U S and um, in, in, in the little niche that we were in um, my contributions really were like, you know, early on, like, uh, like quack just approached me. He said, Hey, you know, like I got this opportunity. Uh, do you want to come in and invest with me? Um, I think, you know, with both of our names, we can, you know, get something going with this. <clears throat> and, uh, he was really the strength in everything. Like, um, you know, I did a few things in the beginning, like getting the rings and showing them how to set up rings and stuff like that and all. And, uh, you know, uh, just brought name and maybe being able to connect with a few people and stuff like that and all. But, uh, and like early on doing a lot of the training, um, it, but like it, from a, from a creative standpoint, he's the one that came up with all of the stuff uh, that they did there. Um, so unfortunately I can't, I can't take any credit for that. So a lot of the, the direction he went, it was like the brainchild, uh, it was the brain, brainchild of Mike Quackenbush. Like I, I didn't really do much, but like come up with the name, the logo. And that was like an agreed upon thing and, uh, did some of the accounting and got the ring. Cause it did a lot of initial initial things with it. And, uh, I, I stepped away from it, uh, about a year in about a year in, I stepped away from it. Um, it was a pretty big commitment, uh, going up there like, uh, three times a week. I was working a, uh, a, a day job. I was about an hour, an hour and a half away from there. Mm. So, um, and like I said, this was a time where I got married. My, uh, I was getting married and, you know, there were a lot of moving parts and, um, and it just wasn't financially viable. And I was like, this is taking a lot of time. There's other areas, like it was hard. Um, it was taking more money than, uh, you know, than anything. Like it, it was hard. It wasn't like we got ahead on anything. Like if we got ahead, uh, suddenly something would break on the ring and it would cost thousands of dollars to fix. Um, if we started to get ahead, then like did somebody tried to sue us and all. And so like it, it ate up money. So like, it was just like, it was losing money at a time where I needed to bring in more money and uh, I stepped away. And uh, so unfortunately I can't take too much credit other than like that initial class or two that came through and uh, um, really just being a partner in uh, with him early on and then supporting him over the time. I think when I came out of that um, I was doing like the technician thing and stuff like that. And I would, 
I would, I was always wearing Jakara gear and putting over Jakara. I was still working with Jakara here and there, but, uh, it was still more of the, it was, it was a brainchild of quack. So unfortunately I can't take, I can't, I'm yeah. sorry. No, it's take okay. credit for that. <laughs> uh, who, who were some of the standouts, uh, in the, uh, the students in the beginning? <clears throat> um, so there, when I was there, um, man, you know, the funny thing is, is like trying to remember everybody's names. Like that was, there were so, what was more surprising than anything is the flood of people that wanted to be trained. Uh, I was worried like, oh man, like we'll be the, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe we'll get like two or three guys and all, and we'd have like 10 or 12 guys. And so there were a lot of guys. Um, I can remember, you know, like the Ultramanus Black, uh, Mr. Zero, uh, like some of those guys in that first class, um, you know, a second class was, um, uh, you know, Eddie Kingston was in there, uh, what were him and the other guy, they were a tag team. See, now you're really pushing me back. I'm trying to remember now. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, like I was coming in training and I was doing more of like the basic training, a lot of the basics. I was really just big on a lot of the basics. And so I was just making sure they had a good foundation and all to build off of, um, you know, from that. And Quack would watch him. And Quack was really good with that. He would just watch him. He would come up with ideas and give him a gimmick or sell him on it and they would do it. <laughs> And all, and so, uh, so yeah, like, uh, I'm trying, I, I, unfortunately, I'm trying to remember all the different names. Um, I know I'm credited with like training, uh, quite a few people. Um, I probably, I, cause I spent a lot of time, I, I, I probably spent more time training people down in Philly earlier on in my career, um, in a place called Hawkins gym. And there were a number of people that came out of there and like probably most notable, uh, Trent Asset. And also oh, yeah. Trent Acid, uh, Trent Acid would uh, credit me as a uh, as his trainer, uh, and um, you know, I was sad what happened with him. That was one of the things. Like, man, like you know, wrestling is tough enough as it is, but then you start getting really close with some of these people, and um, you know, like it just breaks your heart what happens to some of these people. And it's <clears throat> you know, like people were were dying for all different types of reasons, but far too many people that I've known, you know, in the last 10 years have sadly died in, um, you know, 10 or more years have, have sadly died, you know, you know, just with like, just really tragic circumstances. And that's hard, like, you know, especially for guys I hadn't really seen in a long time or really connected with deeply. But at one time I knew how they thought of me, looked at me and, and how much time I did spend with them. I can remember when, when, when Trent passed, um, uh, that hit me pretty hard and it stayed with me for a long time. Uh, I felt, uh, I mean, I'm sure so many people did in and around them felt a certain amount of guilt too. Like we all do like things like that, the survivors, right. That would just always just burden so terribly with just like, you know, could we have done more, you know, should we have done more? Could we have been a little bit more involved? Maybe, you know, Maybe. And, and, you know, so you, you, you hang on to that. And I'm probably not saying I mean, anybody that might be listening or maybe even you can identify with that to some degree. Right. Yeah. Uh, a loss where you kind of feel like, man, if I if I only did more. Right. And on we carry that weight on ourselves. But, you know, I can remember with him like it was pretty tough. It was pretty tough. And then, you know, and, and, and so many so many other guys I know, too, you know, tragic. Yeah, I mean it's 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 just a, a really harsh lifestyle, you know, working the independence. You know, you're 
it, it's it's mentally taxing on anyone, let alone if like you're an addict or anything like that. It's just it you know exponentially makes it worse. And I know what you mean. I had recently a friend who uh, who I've known for like 20 years who died, basically drank himself to death, and it was kind of mm-hmm. like. You know, you do think that you go like, oh, man, like, what could I have done? You know, but yeah, it's hard not to. And I mean, it's good to say those things to yourself, like, you know, like, you know, and and you usually have somebody around that'll give you counsel, like there's nothing you could have done. They could, I mean, I'm a product of, you know, if you're familiar with cross addicted alcoholics, right? I, I had both parents were drug addicts and alcoholics. Uh, my father took his own life and left me to find him. Um, and, uh, so it was tough, right? Like, you know, like I know like a lot of those things, right? Like going to counsel, all those kind of things. I know that kind of stuff, but still, you still feel it like, right? Like, Oh, did I do everything I could have or should have done? Right. Would my conscience be more clear if I did? And the reality is probably wouldn't, right. You probably still feel like, Oh, there's so much more I could have done. Right. And, and, uh, and it's just tough. Like I said, I just, no, uh, even just recently, one of the guys that I, I knew for a number of years, Z-Bar, uh, um, he was in the uh, Northeast area, CZW standout, um, and, and uh, you know, uh, passed tragically as well. And, and, and just kind of like, you know, you hear about these different things. Ouch, like that just hurts, right? I knew Steve Bradley too, right? And I mean, you know, when things happen to these people, oh man, just feel terrible. Just feel terrible yeah. uh, about it. Uh, one guy at the time who, who now is getting kind of a big, uh, not a huge push, but a, he's kind of getting a lot of TV time lately now is Eddie Kingston and all elite wrestling. Uh, what was he like, uh, as a younger man in Chikara? <laughs> he was, uh, I mean, uh, like I, so I only, I only like trained him for like a minute and it was kind of funny because I like laughed because. Uh, he was training somewhere. He trained somewhere else before he even came to Jakar. So I laughed because I would work with him on stuff and I'd kind of be like, you know, like you train somewhere else. I know, I know you, you work somewhere else. So I don't know if he had like, you know, I'm not really familiar with all the background. If he had more humble beginnings like me, like snuck his way into the business kind of thing. And it was so funny. Like I would get into the business and like the secret was having boots. Right. And having a pair of tights and people be like, oh, well, he must be a wrestler. He must have trained somewhere because he's actually got boots. Right. And um, and so, you know, sneaking into the business and then everybody else talking bad about, you know, these people that sneak into the business. I was like, I'm, <laughs> you know, and so like, I don't know, like, I don't know if he was training somewhere in New York. I feel like he was training somewhere in the city. There was somebody, J- Johnny Rods. um Maybe he was training there before something. He came to Jakarta, so I didn't train with him that much, or I didn't train him that much because uh, I felt like he knew everything. I, I was like, I, I don't really know how much I can really contribute because, like I said, I did more of the basic yeah. stuff. Um, I, I I had the privilege to work not him, but uh, to work on shows with him, and uh, he just always seemed like real serious business. Like he was like, you know, he was just serious business. Like I, I you know. He was the kind of guy that like if we were walking down an alley together, like going different directions, I probably would like cling real close <laughs> to the wall. I'd be worried. Right. Because he would beat me up. Right. Yeah. And because like I'm a fake fighter. Right. And all. so like I'm I can't really like Eddie Murphy did in a comedy skit. He's like, I can beat you up, you know, in a in a in a fake fight because I'm the star. Right. And yeah. I'm not, but he looked like he could kill me for real. And so. <laughs> <laughs> I was always worried. <laughs> yeah, his whole thing was um, 
he uh, he had a match on on TNT on for All Elite Wrestling, and he wasn't signed yet. And they let him like because Cody Rhodes did like an open challenge. So basically, he came in and they let him cut a promo before the match, and everyone was blown away. So then he had yeah, the match. Yeah, he had the match, and then they got, they gave him a contract basically on the spot. They were like, "Oh yeah, you're in." And so now like there's like internet clips of him doing stuff like they'll be like here, and they'll toss him like a like a thing of Sour Patch Kids, and they're like cut a promo on this Sour Patch Kids right now, and he'll just sit there and he'll just like come up with a promo talking about the Sour Patch Kids, and it's it's excellent stuff. Uh, <laughs> so probably 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 like. Uh... Man, I feel like a wrestling generation before him, uh, probably one of the great talkers that would do stuff like that was Steve Carino. Steve Carino was such a great talker, and um, he was just known for being a great talker. Uh, as much as people would say I was a great, he was a hundred times better than me. And he would literally do that. They would like I heard stories, but I would see him. You know, like he's just great at cutting promos, but I would hear stories like when he was in ECW, they would mess around with him and they would have him cut like a 10 minute promo and the camera wouldn't even be on and then have him do it all over again. And he would do another one totally different, 10 times as good. Right. And he was just he was just a great talker, too. So, yeah, I mean, Eddie was definitely a great talker. And um, and so it's funny because when you say certain people, I remember generation before like Carino and I remember him being such a great talker. So I have to ask. uh the na- the nickname, the king of the independence. <laughs> how does that come about? Uh, and how much shit did people give you on the indies because of it? <laughs> Man, I don't know what was worse. The king of the independence moniker or like my PWI ranking. And uh, so like those things like after time just became a curse. Uh, so um we were doing this angle um, in um, in Michigan, in, in, in Michigan, we were up there, and um, it was at the time NWO, all that kind of stuff. And there was um, we were working for a company up there in Michigan, in Detroit area or outside of Detroit, and uh, 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 Don Montoya and I came up with this idea, like just goofing around, and we were we started calling ourselves the East Coast Invasion. And uh, we did some satellite show in like, I can't remember where it was. Did some satellite show and we just, I, I you know, either myself or, or, or Alvarez, uh, I mean, uh, Montoya uh, went and uh, we got like these shirts made that said like East Coast Invasion on them. And uh, the promoter was like, hey, that would be great. Like to do like this angle or whatever. And Dave Prezak was connected with us there. And next thing you know, it, it just had a life of its own and um, <clears throat> East Coast invasion. And so um, then it was like, bring uh, some guys from the East Coast. We're going to do this big promotional thing. So the first time we come out to do like this glorified East Coast invasion thing, Dave Prezak is on the mic introducing us and he's giving everybody a moniker as they come out. Right. And uh, he calls me the king of the independence. He called me the king of the independence. Next thing you know, that was just like coined and everybody starts calling me the king of the independence. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's some people's minds, you know, no, I didn't deserve it. And other people's minds. Yeah. Rightfully. So uh, I, in some circles, I'm like, I'm going to run with this. This is good marketing. I'll sell some shirts. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it quickly became a curse. Uh, King of the Independence quickly became a curse. Um, you know, uh, it's just hard. Like sometimes when you're around some guys, 
right? Like, and they might've been around longer than you and they see you have that name or whatever. Like, I, but it was hard. Like I, I can remember the first, I 95 to 97, 98, um, I financed myself everywhere. Uh, I, you know, I had a day job to support my wrestling habit and all, and I went places for very little money and, uh, just to get my name out there. Cause I was trying to do the Sean Waltman thing. And so I think that was part of the, the King of the independence thing, but, uh, um, not a, at the time, nobody else was doing that. Either nobody else was doing that or nobody else could do that or nobody else was thinking about doing it. Right. And, um, and all it took was that, like that networking and like, like go out and, you know, work really hard. And then guy wants to bring me back and, um, you know, be respectful to everybody, you know, put the guy over, do whatever I had to do. And, uh, so it got that steam, but some of the other guys that weren't traveling, that weren't doing that kind of stuff, um, you know, uh, they hated that. Um, you know, I feel like, I feel like it came to a point where only the fans really liked that moniker. And then, um, and then PWI, uh, you know, I started shooting up in the PWI rankings and, uh, um, I think, you know, being numbered 50, which I think I still hold the record for the highest independent wrestler to never work in a major company, the highest ranking still in the, uh, in the PWI. I think that still holds true. Um, that was, and I think I was like one spot above Hogan, man, people wanted to kill me for that. I, I got potatoed a lot. I got potatoed a lot in the ring for that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I'm just like, what, like somebody else rang me. Why are you guys so mad at me? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, that was like, it was, you know, a blessing and a curse all at yeah. the same time. Like the King, King of the independence. And it was just something that I feel like rolled off of, um, Dave Prezak's tongue. I, I, I had heard rumors many years later, many years later that, um, Sabu was coined the original King of the independence. I had heard that many years later. I don't know how true it was. I know that apparently that moniker, you know, was carried on to other people after me. Um, and they probably felt the same way too. Like it was a blessing and a curse at the same time. I know the pressure, you know, just was amplified a thousand percent to, um, you know, have the best match, uh, perform perfectly, never get anything wrong. Um, I, I, I can remember there was a guy, um, Bridgeport, Connecticut. I worked the show, uh, I worked the show up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I worked this territory a number of times in Connecticut. And this one guy came in one day and he had like one of the magazines and, uh, he said, you know what? Um, I drove a couple hours to see you cause I heard about how awesome you are and, uh, you were such a disappointment and I was going to have you sign my magazine and I don't even want to, uh, I don't even want to have you sign my magazine cause it'd be a complete waste. You're, you're terrible. You weren't even worth m my ride. And I was like, I remember just being completely crushed. Jesus. I was just like, Oh man. Like just like, like talk about soul crushing. And I can remember the guy, whatever it was, the guy was just kind of like coming down on me. And, uh, and I was just like, I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You had the impression of me. And I, I, and I was just like really apologetic. 
And I remember a couple of the other guys actually had overheard what was going on. And I remember they came over, started yelling at him, was threatening to beat him up. And I was like, no, just leave the guy alone. Like, you know, he's entitled to his opinion and all. And, and, oh man, yeah, he was laying into me terrible. And I remember just being like, oh man. So, it, but, but then I would have these experiences where I would go like some places and people would be like, we traveled four hours to see you and it was worth every minute in the car ride. And so like you would have like these highs and you would have these lows and wow. you know, it was just, it was rough. It was rough. I mean, you know, like my time, I wasn't out in Cali that much and I loved my time out in Cali. And, and, and that was the thing, like, like anywhere I went, I just loved it. I loved entertaining people. Um, I loved performing. Um, I always said if, if it, like a lot of the politics, a lot of the stuff in the back was really hard for me. But like, if you could like Star Trek beam me to the uh, like right right at the gorilla for me to walk out, and then as soon as I come back, Star Trek beam me home, like that would have been awesome. I would have probably stayed in it a lot longer. But um, <clears throat> the uh, a lot of the other stuff is t- it was tough and all. So, uh, but you know, to say that like you know like there were a lot of great fan experiences, there were a lot of rough ex- fan experiences. Uh, same thing with the boys. There, I probably there weren't too many bad experiences with the guys, um, uh, over the years. Um, you know, there were, there were very few experiences that were really bad that I thought guys were like really out to get me or hurt me for something like, you know, or undercut me because I was being looked at, right. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, try to use the opportunity to make me look bad. Um, most of the time, um, it was about getting the match over, not necessarily getting, you know, somebody over, right? And, um, you know, it was about getting the match over. It was about getting the show over. And I usually tried to work like that, um, <clears throat> you know, and that's what it was about. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't have to do everything every night. Um, and uh, I didn't have a problem with losing. Um, most of the time, even when I went over, I, I refused to go over big. Um, so I would go over with like a roll up or something goofy like that. I, I, I mean, I would have people kick out of my finisher, like my finisher, whatever it may be. Um, cause I thought that just added to, you know, um, uh, more to the match on top of it, especially if people are like, frog slash is his finisher or, you know, like this is his finisher, you know, and I would have, you know, the guy kick out and that just added to the suspense that much more. And like I said, even if I went over, I went over small. I didn't go over big didn't have a problem with laying down to somebody big either. So, uh, in a big way, I just thought it, it just, it just, you know, especially if, if the crowd was engaged and, and was really working the crowd, like, and I was working a heel role, like that was great for mm-hmm. me to, for me to like go under and the crowd to explode. That was great. Or if I was a baby face, like it was, it, it was, it's much harder to work as a baby face to get yourself over if you don't have a strong heel. Right. Then if you're a strong heel to go under making the baby face look like a look like a superstar. Right. So um, most of the time I worked heel and uh, it just uh, it just kind of, um, you know, it, so I didn't have a problem with laying down at all uh, creatively, you know, getting people over. And even if one went over uh, like uh, when I was NWA champ, I used to get in trouble with the NWA all the time when I was the uh, North American champion. I would go all around and that's kind of like what a catalyst to really start getting me everywhere. Uh, I was NWA North American champion, but it wasn't really defended anywhere. And so I was traveling. So I would take the belt everywhere and I would do a title defense. <laughs> and uh, wherever I was, 
I would, uh, I would wind up, I would wind up going over, but I would slip myself over, but, but I would make the baby face, uh, I'd make the baby face look like he won. Right. So I would do one of those jammies where the ref would get knocked down kind of thing. And, and the baby face would have me pinned and they would slide in a second ref and count me and it looked like a title change. And then they, you know, the other guy would get up and like, we would do stuff like that. And just like the, the fans just loved it. And I, Workers love. I, I loved it, and it's just it was a lot of fun, and so um, so it's stuff like that. Just getting real creative in the ring and, and trying to make everybody go home happy or feel like they got their money's worth, and that's what mattered to me. And all like if somebody paid, you know, however much to get in, I wanted. I was hoping that you know at the very least my match was the match they were because that's the way I felt, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like I, when I was watching indie wrestling, I used to like I used to follow uh, these guys Johnny Hotbody and Tony Stetson. Uh, like found out about this local feud. That's how I got even connected with independent wrestling, Johnny Hotbody and Tony Stetson. I didn't even care who else was on the show and they would have names on the show. And I'd be like, I'm here to see Johnny Hotbody and Tony Stetson. And I'm here to see what they're going to do. Right. And I'll, cause I was a huge Hotbody mark. And, um, and so I would just be like, yeah, like, uh, I would just want to see this. And so like, I paid $15 to see that match. Right. Yeah. And so I knew if I'm, if I was like that, right. There's a lot of other people that were there for one match. Right. And the other matches might be bonuses might be great. Or, you know, over the years, they got the benefit of having a lot of great matches, but like, man, like if they paid 10, 15, 20, $25, however much they pay to get in, like, I want them to feel like they got their money's worth, you know, hopefully at, at my match. But that didn't always happen. <laughs> Brother, it is time to take this bad boy home. I have a list of questions here. It is the go-home segment of the podcast. Uh, fire through them. Uh, you can take as much time as you want, really. It's not really a hard rule. But uh, if Andre the Giant is the eighth wonder of the wrestling world, who, for you, are the other seven wonders of the wrestling world? Basically, almost <clears throat> an extended Mount Rushmore of wrestlers to you. Uh, definitely Luthez. Uh, Tiger Mask, uh, Masawa, uh, Muda, uh, Flair, Rogue Warriors, and um, Johnny Saint. There you go. Uh, speaking of Misawa, by the way, uh, you talked about um, we talked about Modest earlier. Uh, when Misawa came out to do the Pro Wrestling Iron Show in NorCal, uh, he did that at uh, Noah's expense. Uh, uh, Modest was like. Oh, we'd like to have someone from Noah come, but we can't really afford anything. And they're like, "Don't worry about it." And yeah, Misawa and Ogawa came for free. Wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah, insane. Uh, and that's the kind of respect. That's the kind of respect that that Modest had, right? Yeah. From like from like that organization, and that just speaks volumes about Modest, right? And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what are some of your favorite road stories? <laughs> I thought you said you got to wrap this thing up (laughs) (laughs) and we got to have a part two to go through road stories. Um, when you say road stories, do you mean like not in the ring? Uh, I just mean like, you know, traveling to shows, any of that stuff. Um, hmm. so, uh, (laughs) just funny story. Uh, I'd love to tell you too. One outside of the ring and one inside the ring. Perfect. Okay. Right. So um, outside of the ring, we're doing this show in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dilo was with me. Uh, it was uh, Don Montoya, Dilo, and myself were doing this show in Grand, Ra- Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dilo, like it was pretty early when he was in Nation of Domination. 
they were still lending out talent or whatever. He was just, I, I'm trying to remember if he did the show or if he just came with us. He had to do the show. Anyway, long and short is uh, he uh, came with us and he was really big. Something happened. He was really big in staying in night's ends. And like everybody knows, we have to travel on our own expense a lot of times, right? And so we would all group up in hotel rooms together and things like that. And uh, <laughs> uh, he was like, we're going to stay in nights in. I've been staying in nights in. They're really good right now, right? And so we're like, okay, we're like trusting them. We're going to stay in nights in. So we get in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I don't know anything. It's the first time there. And uh, we went up like just turn off the first nights in near the venue, turn off and go. Well, we didn't realize it, but we happened to be in a really, really bad area of town. And this nights in was not a nice, nice nights in. And uh, we get in there and there's like, prostitution drug dealing going on somebody was shot while we were there and the cops were there and like right at the place like it was insane but so mind you so i'm like this place is great like like and by this point we like we like paid our money like it was not like we could really get our money back so we got to stay there and the place was pretty disgusting i was like i'm gonna sleep with all my clothes on like even the hood on my jacket like laying down on the and um they stepped out for something uh, 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 Montoya and, um, and D step out for something. And I go to the bathroom and I'm in the bathroom, um, doing my business in the bathroom. And it was one of those ones where like kind of the walls right next to you and you're kind of on the toilet. And, uh, I kind of look over at the wall and suddenly I see like a, a piece of paper. Like it looks like it's like, uh, like it was wallpaper and it looks like there's like a piece of paper that's kind of glued over top. And I'm looking at, it, I'm going, that's a weird way to cover that up. And then I looked and I saw another one and then I saw another one and I saw another one. And I'm like, this is a bad cover up job. Like, what were they trying to cover up? And I started to look and no lie, it was framed around like a body sitting on the toilet. So somebody had come through the door, must have shot a shotgun because I started peeling the paper and it was all little shotgun. So somebody died right on the toilet. Shit. (laughs) terrible i was like this is somebody was literally murdered in the same spot that i'm sitting right now like i don't care how like you know there was no this was like and it was like and and so i tell the story to everybody to just say like and that was i can't even remember what year that was but i never stayed at a night's in ever again now i mean there might have been nicer night's ins and stuff like that we were obviously not in a great area uh and there was enough stories of that night alone but just to tell you that i'm sitting there and i'm literally peeling and i'm going what's that like it would look like a like a bb thing for it and then i'm peeling it and i'm looking and i'm realizing framing my entire body somebody must have come in with a shotgun and shot a shotgun and holy shit shotgun and all right yeah somebody got i was like oh man talk about sitting like right in somebody's grave right like that was crazy um Second story, uh, I, man, I could tell you so many stories. I'm trying to think about. Um, so this is when I was in Memphis. This is one of the ones that I got in so much trouble for. Uh, uh, did you ever hear about the rubber chicken story? No. No. Okay. So so uh, maybe I just told this to some of the boys or whatever. But anyway, we're down in Memphis. <coughs> uh, me and Blue Meanie are working like this tag team um, series with uh, Jim Nightheart. And I can't remember the other person. But anyway, uh, 
it was a night that they decided like, oh, okay, we're going to go over, right? But it's Jim Neihart, and I know Jim, he's a big name. We're not going to go over. I think we might have been heels, so we weren't going to go. If we were going over, we were going to be, you know, we weren't going to go over fairly, this, that, and the other thing. And so I knew all about this ahead of time and um, <clears throat> well ahead of time. And I was like, because uh, we did a program. You wind up doing a program for like a month, month and a half. And so I was like, you know, uh, he's going to give us those like those gimmick brass knuckle thingies or whatever, you know, to hit him with at the end of the match. I said, how about if we go to Spencer gifts and get one of those rubber chickens and, uh, and like, cause he's going to turn around. He's not going to, he's not going to know what hits him. He's just going to sell it. And, uh, and Meanie's like, there's no way I'm going to do that. There's no way I'm going to do that. And so I was like, come on, just do the rubber chicken and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And so finally I convinced Meanie to do because Meanie, the jokester, he doesn't want to do it. And uh, so I get one of those rubber chickens at it. Like it, goes, it makes the, you squeeze it. It makes the weird noise. And um, I get the rubber chicken. So we're, we're in the back and uh, Nightheart's telling us to finish and he hands us the gimmick breast knuckles. We're like, uh, 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 and Meanie goes, I can't, I can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. Cause they were filming it for TV. And I'm like, I'm like, uh, I'm like, listen, dude, we're doing it. He was like, just do the knuckles, just do the knuckles, just do the knuckles. So uh, <clears throat> uh, something happened where I went in and I slipped it under the ring before we came out like uh, earlier. So I, I was like, I, I was like, it's under the ring. And he's like, no, 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 do the brass knuckles. And so the end of the match comes and I reach, <laughs> I reach under the ring and I do the big toss to Mimi, the rubber chicken. And he catches it, and like so, this is all they're filming this on camera. He catches the rubber chicken. Nightheart like just spins around, and he whacks Nightheart with the rubber chicken. And Nightheart takes this huge bump, and he covers him one, two, three. And the crowd's laughing and everything and all. And so I walk into the back. I'm laughing and everything. I walk into the back, and uh, Nightheart like Nightheart comes in, and he is going to kill me. <laughs> Like literally like everybody in the locker room had to hold him back. He wanted to be like, he wanted to kill me. He's like, he was this close to me. He's spitting all over me. He's yelling at me and he's trying to hit me. Like, and everybody's holding him back. And, um, and so like, he was furious with me and I had to do a program with him for the next couple of days and all. And he was furious. He knew it was me. Me, he was like, he made me do it. Right. And, um, and like, and he was like, you made me look bad on TV. Well, then it turns out he sits down. He's furious. I totally got and then the promoter came in and the promoter is yelling and screaming because I ruined the TV cut and all, and they couldn't use it for TV. So they just wasted TV, like they wasted the filming and stuff like that. And all. so the promoter wanted to come that night. I thought I was, I thought for sure I was going to get beat up by somebody, but it was just one of those comical moments that like, I was laughing so hard to see him sell the rubber chicken. <laughs> and, um, and because, you know, you turn it around and you're just expecting the gimmick. Right. And Razy turned around and gets waffled with the gimmick and he just took the bump. And he gets been, and everybody's just laughing, laughing their brains out, and all. And it was just so that was the that was the rubber chicken, and um, so two goofy stories. Uh, like I said, I, I could tell so many other stories, but uh, I figure I'll give you one, uh, you know, while traveling, and another one in the ring that uh, that almost got me killed. That one almost got me killed. There you go, people. Yeah, I might have to hit you up to do a, a full-on story episode just to really go out. <laughs> stories, because, I'll give you a whole bunch of stories. Yeah, because yeah, that's that's fantastic already. That's two gold ones right there. Uh, <laughs> what is a favorite move or hold that you never used? Uh, 
So one of my favorite moves is the sit-out moonsault. Uh, that uh, also affectionately called the Arabian moonsault by Sabu. The one in Bennett, it's like it's between the two posts and he would sit and bounce like it's thighs and flip back. I used it a few times, but um, the older I got, the less comfortable I felt doing it. And um, I loved it. Daniels uh, did it all the time too. Uh, that's probably by far one of my favorite moves is that sit-out moonsault. I love that. Uh, what is the craziest fan interaction you had? Uh, well, probably that one in Connecticut that I shared where that guy just like ripped me apart. Yeah. That's not so fun though. That one. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm trying to think like, um, like, uh, so, uh, funny story, uh, like, uh, uh, probably craziest fan interaction. Um, it was, uh, I was in Texas. So I was doing some shows in Texas and I was an indie guy, right? So <clears throat> you had to be a hardcore fan if you knew me and especially if you recognize me, right? Glasses on uh, like Clark Kent, right? Glasses off Superman. Like most people I would, I would perform and then I would walk out after I performed out in the show and nobody would even recognize me. Right. And they might've just been trying to rip my head off. People didn't normally recognize me. So if anybody ever recognized me on the street, Right. I would just be I would always be crazy respectful and all because they had to be a serious fan if, if they knew who I was. And um, so I was in Texas and uh, often I would go to places and uh, um, I would travel and I would get to places early because I always had like anxiety about getting to place on time. And I would get into the town really early, flying early, you know, all that kind of stuff, getting to town early. And I would always go to. Uh, I would hang out at the airports for a while, just sitting people watch, or I would go to the malls and sit and people watch. So I'm in Texas, I'm sitting and I'm people watching in this mall and this group of guys walk by and don't you know, they're like, Hey, that's reckless youth. And they walked up and they started talking to me. I went up taking picture, pictures with them and everything. And next thing you know, other people are walking by. And I guess I, it caused enough of commotion. Other people were asking who I was and stuff like that. And all. so that was, that was kind of neat. Um, that was just a neat interaction. It kind of caught me off guard, a uh, craziest fan interaction. I, I just thought that was, it was always weird when somebody would recognize me like out of the element, just looking my normal nerdy self and somebody <laughs> would recognize me. That would, that would always uh, that would always be interesting. Even 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 as my kids got older, people would recognize me here and there. Many years later, and my kids would no sell me. They'd be like, "Why was that person talking to you?" <laughs> they like aren't fans of anything. So uh, TikTok dancers, maybe that's about it. Uh, but but um, not wrestling. As a as a you know quote unquote a civilian now, no longer in the business. Uh, like how often, like does does maybe your wife or someone like when you meet someone new, like you know you have new friends or whatever someone go like you know he used to be a pro wrestler like just to, like almost like mess with you to be like now you got to sit there and explain yeah i wrestled for a long time and did a like so how- uh on my professional resume on my professional resume i have to account for the time uh particularly that i was with the wwe right so uh i was in uh i was in the accounting profession leading up to that i had to quit that job uh to uh go into the wwe and so i have to account for that time and uh so i put in there that i was talent stanford connecticut world wrestling entertainment and inevitably that always comes up in interviews or now through linkedin people will you know like i read that like you know what did you do for wwe like uh you know like what were you an accountant for them or whatever something like that but uh like here and there i run across people that might know me so at work um 
it, oh, it, at work, it's common knowledge. There are a couple people at work that knew me, like that knew of Reckless Youth. And uh, so here and there, people will make a big deal about like, oh, that's, you know, Reckless Youth or whatever. Or he used to be a wrestler. And, and also it always inspires interesting talks. And I got a thousand stories uh, that, that, uh, that are worth probably nothing, but um, except a little laugh here and there. Uh, and so I always got some stories to tell people about different interactions with different people or different circumstances. And all. When you uh, were working with someone new, uh, what's the worst thing they could do in a match? <clears throat> I hated chops. Uh, I hated getting chopped. Uh, and uh, so I used to tell people, like, don't chop me. <laughs> But sometimes people would chop me or sometimes I would work with people and that was like their gimmick to chop. And so it would be like, Oh, I had to, had to take the chop. But, uh, probably the worst thing that would happen is, is I worked with a few people that would like roid rage and, uh, um, being with a roid rager, right? Like, so, <clears throat> um, it's one thing to be on the independence and feel, um, 500, 600, 1500, you know, people, 2000 people all facing your direction and you know, your chest rumbling, but like working like a, a fed show where there's like 15,000, 25,000 and suddenly the crowd erupts for somebody like you can't even breathe in the ring, right? Like you can just feel all the sound vibrations. Like, it, it, I, it, you know, trying to perform in those things, like it's just amazing. But, um, <clears throat> you know, like, Oftentimes, the explosion of a crowd in a situation like that, because I was usually heel, it was my job to get the baby over and get an explosive reaction from the baby. And if the baby was like a roid rager, uh, it was on the gas or something, <laughs> and they would roid rage, like it, there was no turning back, like, you know, like, uh, unless you had to take them down and stretch them to try to wake them up. And also, like, getting in the ring with a roid rager was, uh, you know, like, and you wouldn't know it, right? Like you wouldn't always know it until like it happened. Next thing you know, they're like punching you for real. And you're like, Whoa, I want to go to, I want to go to uh, Outback Steakhouse after this. Like, dude, I, I'm not going to be able to eat your punch him in the face so hard. Oh, wow. <laughs> Damn. Um, speaking of which actually one of the questions I have, so this actually works out perfectly. Uh, who had the stiffest chops? Uh, big Rick Fuller. If you've ever heard of that guy, uh, Man, there is a match out there, JCW, uh, I did in New Jersey. I had to wrestle this guy in like a tournament or just wrestle him, whatever. And, and he, and he was a big dude. And, um, he was a nice guy too. Big dude though, uh, in WCW for a minute. I think he might have been under Fed deal, but, uh, he was huge. And he was like one of those guys. He's like, like his shirts he sold. He had like a hand on it that was like as mm. big as like a person's body. And, um, I knew one of the big things he did is he did this chop sequence. So we back in the corner overhand knife edge overhand and uh we're working and i know i gotta take the chop like because i'm going over on this guy he's slipping me over and um it's it's not a long match and so he's getting everything in and that's one of the things he's gonna do and i was dreading it he backs me in the corner and if you find this video i know because i've seen it and i laugh at it he backs me into this corner it's right at the end of the match he see his you know, up, down, up, down. And then he whips me to the other side. I'm, I'm supposed to move out of the way and schoolboy him up one, two, three, right? And uh, he backs me in the corner. He gives me the overhand. Pow! And uh, everything went black. He shot me, and 
I couldn't see anything. It was so painful. It was so painful. Overhands me. And I just was like, Oh, like I couldn't see anything. Like, like I, you hear about like pain, so excruciating, like it makes you pass out, like kind of thing, like everything went black. And I was just like, and I remember thinking to myself, that overhand was terrible. Maybe his knife edge isn't that bad. He hits me with the knife edge and like, and mind you, everything's black. I can't see anything. He hits me with the knife edge. No lie. In the back of my throat, I tasted Snickers. You would think I'm not, I, you would think I ate a Snicker bar. He gave me a ch- boom, boom. And like, at this point I tasted Snickers and I don't know what happened after that. I know what the finish was supposed to be. And mind you, there was a third chop because <laughs> I saw the video and like, and he whips me across the ring and it's almost comical to watch. Cause I'm like, like, I can't even run. I'm like falling all over the place. I go into the corner, I fall out. He kind of like falls over me like the, and pins himself. Like it's a hot mess. Three chops. I, 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 my life expectancy was shortened through those three chops. Probably the worst thing. I've been chopped by other people that hurt. One chop, blackout. Next chop, um, like everything went black. Ne- next chop, Snickers. No lie. It tastes like I ate like a Snicker bar. Like it isn't weird. And I, I never felt a third one. Wow. Never felt the third one. I didn't, I didn't come to, I don't remember. It was like I had a concussion and this guy chopped me in the chest. Because <laughs> I didn't come into it in the locker room until like several, like I remember being in the locker room, like later going, looking around like I had a concussion. Like, uh, I guess the match is over and like my chest was bleeding. And <laughs> God. Rick Fuller killed me, literally killed me. Um, I'm, I'm assuming the first part to this question is going to be a yes. Has a booker tried to stiff you on money? And if so, what are some excuses as to why? <clears throat> Surprisingly, I never got booked. Let me set that. Uh, I only ever had one experience that I didn't get paid for work. Everybody else paid me. And so, like, I got paid something. Um, uh, I, I mean, uh, I remember one time I got paid uh, a hot dog and relish. Um, so I got paid. <laughs> so you literally got the hot got, dog and a handshake. I got, I got a hot dog with relish and you want to know what's crazy. I don't like relish. <laughs> and so, uh, I didn't even eat the hot dog, but like I got paid by everybody. Um, I, I, there was not a time. There were times that I got paid when I didn't work too. I remember, uh, like flying places and getting sick or something happened. I had a lot of problems with planes and stuff. Uh, and I got caught on a couple of propeller planes. One time I got food poisoning, uh, and I got paid. Right. So like, like, uh, you know, I was always well taken care of. The only time I didn't get paid, the only time I was ever not paid for work was, uh, the one and only time I worked for ECW. Uh, and Paulie called me, he was talking about having me come in and he was going to give me a salary and this, that, and the other thing. And I was going to come in and, and like, you know, talking about all of that, I came in, I definitely had like a subpar match with Nova that night. I had a, I had a fever, not making excuses. I was, I was sick, but definitely didn't have the best match and I didn't get paid at all. And, um, and I went back and forth with them and like, didn't wind up going back. But, uh, it, you know, I take a little comfort in knowing that like, I wasn't the only one that experienced that. <laughs> there were a yeah. lot of boys later on that I found out that weren't getting paid. So it wasn't like I was unique or anything like that, but um, <clears throat> maybe I got a little heat for, 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 
for not uh, for not staying there like a lot of other people did and, and not get paid. But um, at the time, I was just making good money in the indies and all. And uh, <clears throat> that was another place I was a little scared to be at. Um, <clears throat> as much as I wanted to be at, I didn't want to be at because hardcore stuff didn't appeal to me. And I was a little worried about, about getting beat up with, with chairs and stuff like that. But that was the only person that I ever didn't get paid from. Um, so uh, everybody else paid me. <laughs> Uh, this might have already been answered with when it comes to the rubber chicken stuff, but uh, what's the hardest you've laughed at an indie show? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pro- probably probably the rubber chicken, probably the rubber chicken. Like like you know, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, w- I would just say the rubber chicken. That would probably be a good one. That like I I couldn't stop laughing even though I was going to get killed. Uh, I couldn't stop laughing. It just you know. Uh, there, there were some other times where, you know, like it, it was common to, to make each other laugh when we were in the ring and things like that. So there was stuff like that. There, there wasn't ever, ever a time where it was like kind of like uncontrollable where I couldn't stop like, uh, probably like, uh, like the rubber chicken though. <laughs> I was probably one time. Um, you know, you were in the business for quite a while. You've traveled to a lot of different territories, a lot of different companies. What's some of the worst gimmicks you've seen? So when I first started, uh, I would classify a lot of those uh, early 90s to mid 90s gimmicks as, as, as terrible gimmicks. Uh, but traveling on the indies, um, when I was coming up at Larry Sharp's towards the tail end of Larry Sharp's, um, there were a lot of more, there was a lot more rigidity when I was first there. And then towards the end, it was a lot looser. So like I told you, when I first started, like nobody could be there, could do their own gimmick. And um, they had to like see what you develop into over time. And uh, towards the end, people could just pick their gimmicks and they could do the get their gimmicks on the first show. And so there was this one guy, <laughs> there was this one guy, he, he uh, desperately wanted to call himself the power destroyer. Now, that being said, you would have this image in your mind that this would be this six foot five, you know, buff bodybuilder guy. This guy, now I was like 165 pounds, you know, skinny, but like this guy was like five, four, uh, skinnier than me, whiter than me, like paler, you know, paler than me. And, uh, he desperately wanted to call himself the power destroyer. And not only that, but he like, uh, he, uh, had no, uh, he would wear no shirt or anything too. And it's like, (laughs) and he called himself the power destroyer. It was the most ridiculous thing. And we tried to talk to him like, this just does not suit you. Like maybe just use your real name for a little while. Cause we were still hanging on to some of that stuff. And uh, he was like, Nope, I'm the power destroyer. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to trademark that name. This, that, and the other, the guy lasted a minute. Um, <clears throat> the reckless youth name was taken from somebody else anyway. So like, I, I didn't even have a, an amazing amount of, uh, of uh, originality in myself. Uh, it was somebody else that allowed me to use that name. So, um, but yeah, this guy, power destroyer totally didn't suit him that was easily the worst like on the indies that i ever saw um yeah that was definitely one you'll yeah. never find that <laughs> yeah uh it's it's interesting because I, I remember hearing that uh someone else had the reckless youth name before uh but when you mentioned that guys there uh they basically had to use their regular name and then they got a gimmick i feel like over here on the west coast side of things i don't know maybe different promotions on the east coast did this too i felt like a lot of guys when they just like graduated or were graduating and they were you know starting to wrestle they always got handed a gimmick that got handed to a bunch of different people so like big time wrestling mm. had like five people named white trash 
That like really, yeah. So like, they a guy would be white trash, and then eventually, when he figured out his gimmick, he would become that gimmick. But or like, um, like there was like a like a Chicano Flame in All Pro Wrestling, and then like like there was like Chicano Flame two, Chicano Flame three. Uh, SPW had like El Chupacabra, and then like another Chupacabra, and then like another Chupacabra. So oh my like, goodness. so like that that I feel like maybe that was the West Coast thing then because I felt like maybe, and this yeah. might have just been a regional thing too. I mean, it's hard to know. I just know they were pretty rigid, and I know in the in the uh like that area that new york to delaware area a lot of the guys just use the regular name or they started out as their regular name right and they would eventually turn into a gimmick and you might grab some people later that had a gimmick um but that was pretty old school um like i said when i was coming up like like i said i go back to me like i was training 93 94 you know up yeah. until 95 when i debuted and when i debuted i had to be my regular name tights boots all of that, uh, it was a it was a mess, and um, I, you know, and the only reason that that reckless youth thing ever happened is because I was out in the Midwest and I, I had to go under an alias. Yeah, and then most so of the time too. Most of the time too, the hand me down gimmicks over here uh, involved wearing a hood at some kind. I think it's probably the lucha influence okay. in California. So then that oh, okay. way, okay, so okay. then that way, when you eventually did have your own character, you wouldn't be recognizable from, yeah, from the person. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's um, hard. Hood's hard to work with. Hood, hood is hard to work with. Um, I'm sure you had a lot of guys that you worked with, you know, big names, uh, on indie shows, whether you worked with them or just on the same card as them, were there any, you know, WWF, WCW, ECW guys that thought they were bigger than the show, acted like they were bigger than the show, just really rubbed you the wrong way. Once again, you don't have to say names, but just moments where you're like, wow, this is, this guy was kind of an asshole for no reason. So when I was first coming up, when I was first coming up, they had, a um, the fed was still lending out talent to shows and um so early on for me there was this experience with like seeing some of these heroes come down or legends or whatever come down that um that uh you know uh, uh you know otherwise we wouldn't be exposed to and like and like these are heroes so, so my one friend who started out with me dave keller um he looked a lot like uh, bob Backlund. And the one promoter had the money and he was like, I, I think it would be funny to book you against Bob Backlund. And so he got back Bob Backlund and uh, Backlund came in and he was just really mean. He just wasn't nice. He was really mean. He just didn't seem like he wanted to be there. And um, I know he just really didn't care too much for the guy, for my friend Dave. And my friend Dave was like the biggest fan in the world. And like his heart was completely crushed and they, like he wanted to quit the business wow. <laughs> after that. And that was tough that was really tough but um <clears throat> i didn't have me personally i didn't have like uh a, like a lot of like I, I i can't really recall like too many bad experiences like for me there were a lot of like good experiences that in my opinion like i had with people that i don't think i should have really had right so like i i i you know i share with you uh, that whole experience with regal Right. Like Regal, I went for that first tryout and he was really kind to me, um, you know, like and he didn't have to be uh, at the time that I was there too. Uh, Austin, Steve Austin was uh, was on top at that time. And I came back and he was giving me pointers and talking to me and, and walking me through things and stuff like that. Like just like and, and, and you know, in the rest of the place, like, you know, nobody would talk to me at all. Like, who's this? You know, who's this little kid? Right. And um, so, like, it was, you know, some good experiences like that. Um, I hear horror stories about some guys after some time, like if they get big and they, you know, they get full of themselves. 
Um, but uh, I didn't really see that. Like, I mean, I even think of guys like uh, AJ Styles, right? I, I haven't talked to AJ in a, in a million years, right? But I can remember he used to walk around. I know he's a born-again Christian, and at the time, I wasn't. And um, he used to say, hey, how you doing? And he would always go around, and he would just be like, better, to that, better than I deserve, better than I deserve. Always such a really humble guy. Um, I, I, I would hope that's still, still the case. Always very kind to everybody. And, um, you know, just a reflection even of his Christianity, like in, in what he did and all. So, um, you know, I, I had a lot of really, really good experiences with people that I shouldn't, I really, I don't think I really should have, right? Cause I didn't fit the mold and stuff like that. And maybe it was cause I wasn't too all intimidating to anybody. They're like, this guy isn't going to get a job. Right. So like, I, you know, in general, I didn't have a lot of bad experiences like that. But like I said, I, I do that one haunts me you know, um, about my one friend. Right. And, yeah. and it haunts me because it just broke his heart. Right. To like, Oh, like, Oh, it's Bob Backlund. And, um, and it just, and, and like, and Backlund was like, oh, this is another show. Didn't really, you know, and, and, and I know it was heartbreaking for him and all. I didn't really have that, you know, uh, I didn't really have those kind of experiences though myself. I, I, like I said, I had some good experiences. Speaking of, uh, you're, you're talking about the feedback that you got from like Austin or Regal. What was something that uh, they told you, like a piece of advice or like uh, feedback on your match or something that, like in hindsight, you're like, oh, that's that's amazing. But like at the time, you were like, I didn't even think of that as being like something I had to work on. Like, holy shit! Like I, I had no idea. Like, was there anything like a weird piece of advice that you got that you're like, that was never even in my mind, but it was like a great piece of advice, basically. <laughs> So, um, you know, uh, I, I got, I was mentored by Regal for, for a number of months. So, uh, I, I consumed a lot with him and he led me around the ring. So I learned a, a lot from him there, but some of that, some of that early advice that I would get from some people would be so conflicting, right? So like one minute people would tell me to slow down and then another minute they tell me to speed up and. Then they tell me to interact with the crowd and then they tell me not to interact with the crowd. Like, right. It was like, it felt like it was so confusing a lot of times weeding through some of that stuff. And the reality is like, maybe there was like, I, I slowed down too much when somebody told me I was too fast and then I needed to speed up more. And, you know, it was just hard. I, I, I knew the biggest thing um, was really to just gauge and feel out the audience and probably some like, like, and, and I want to discount like Regal, like the advice that Regal gave me and, and some other great people. But uh, very early on, it took me a long time to figure this out. But very early on, uh, Glenn Ruth, uh, headbanger thrasher, uh, was training me. And the biggest thing is trying to understand psychology. <clears throat> the hardest thing is psychology. Um, and uh, he explained it um, from, because he was involved in construction, and he explained it from the standpoint of building a house. And he explained that analogy to me. And I'll tell you what, it took me years to really be able to uh, make that a reality and begin to understand how to build that house, right? <clears throat> Ultimately getting to the, to the peak, you know, the roof where, you know, getting into the finish, right? False finishes and stuff like that. And on building the foundation and things like that. And so like uh, that was probably the best advice, but it took me a long time to understand it what after i got that advice what i started to do is a lot of matches that i thought were good what i would do is i would look for that formula in those matches and then what i would try to do is just replicate those matches right but i would just 
you know, insert my stuff into it <laughs> or somebody mm -hmm. else's stuff that I was working with. Right. But it took a long time for that. So probably one of the most lasting things really was just always around psychology, feeling out the crowd, understanding the crowd, looking at the temperature of the crowd. And even like I used to watch a lot of other people's matches leading up to mine and even after mine to like to get feelers. Right. Like, like, you know, like, how do I even pace something next time I come back? Right. Or even leading up to my match, like what's going on out here? How's the crowd responding? So like <clears throat> it was stuff like that. And it was all because of that analogy about the house and trying to understand that, because when he when he painted that picture, he didn't just paint it a picture from the standpoint of my match, that match. He also used that analogy to stretch it across the entire show. Right. Mm. And then across, and so like, and so like, then I was just like, now, like, it was kind of like studying that and learning that and understanding that. And that concept took me a long time to really work out. And um, to that point, depending on the crowd, the place, whatever was going on, what was the, you know, the pitch of the matches or the style of the show that I was on, I had to be conscious of all those kind of things. That reminds me of, I, I got into a whole, a, you know, a YouTube hole of watching like, uh, video essays on screenwriting and stuff like that because I'm big into movies and uh, it reminded me of, that reminds me of when they say like oh you know uh, the movie has a three act structure right you know and they say like yeah but technically every scene also has a three act structure <laughs> in those scenes that build up to the large so that's what that reminds me of where it's like yep. okay, each section actually has the exact same structure in a smaller way and I was like that's so interesting to me I don't know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but We've reached it. The final question. I call this the touchy-feely question of the podcast. It is your pure joy in wrestling. The moment before, during, or after a match. The part that you get goosebumps where you're like, this is why I love wrestling. This is the thing that made me fall in love with wrestling. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think I told you, like, just my interactions um, with the fans um, – are probably the, the, the biggest things like during the match, right? Like I told you, I love working with kids. Um, so working with kids, uh, was, was great. Uh, working on shows with kids, right. And, and performing for them, uh, because they love like the clear good guy and bad guy. And I love portraying that story. And I, and I had no problem with making myself look like a fool as a heel, um, that it would just be eaten up. But, um, even like, you know, when you hook the crowd, um, there's a moment where you hook the crowd, right? And you know, they're engaged in your story, right? Like I can, I can watch Netflix and I can know within five minutes, right? If I want to continue to watch this story anymore or not, right? If I care about the story or not, like they hook you at a point and you, and then you want to see what's going to happen and how it rolls out. And, um, you know, to get people at that place, like sometimes you don't necessarily know that place until you get to the false finishes, to see how committed they are to you. Uh, sometimes in the turnaround, you can catch them, but like there's that place. And, and I've been fortunate enough to been a, be at that place a number of times where something would happen and the crowd would pop and I would be laying next to the person I'm working with. And I would be like, yeah, we got them. They're engaged. This is awesome. This is going to be great. And, and, and you might be 20 minutes in, 25 minutes in, 30 minutes in, and you might be exhausted. But that energy, like I was talking about earlier, like all those, you know, all that sound coming at you, right? Uh, like in that electricity from that, like it would just fuel you for the next five, 10 minutes as you're going into the finish. And um, 
I think about stuff like um, I remember working uh, different people, but like uh, like Striker, Matt Striker in ROH. I had a great match with him where it was like, man, they were there with every bit of it. And uh, and we were just exchanging things and they were just like eating it up. And uh, and those are the type of things that just like, oh, man, it's just golden. It's just golden. You're like, oh, man, they they like my painting. Right. Like, you know, that's what we are. We're just starving artists trying to sell our paintings. And, you know, and many times it's not until after we die that anybody even cares about the, the paintings. Right. Um, to some degree, we're all like Vincent van Gogh, van Gogh's. Right. Um, and, and, and so um, it is. It's, and, and there's that point where you're kind of like, oh, man, all of this work, um, the long drive, the, you know, the, the little pay, the whatever, you know, it is uh, when they when they engage in that way, you're like, that makes it all worth it. It doesn't matter that, you know, that I don't have gas money to get home and, uh, you know, I'm going to be hungry and I got a hot dog with with relish and I <laughs> don't eat relish. And all. It, do, it, 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 it doesn't matter. And all. like I said, it's, it, it, we are, we're starving artists and uh, just trying to sell our paintings. And when people appreciate it, it's just like, that's really nice. And all. And I, I was really fortunate that, that, that people liked, liked my work and uh, I'm flattered that they did. And um, that in some way it can still live on because of, you know, programs like yours uh, where you still want to relive me after 20 years. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I'm glad that I may have been in some way, uh, a catalyst or contributed to, um, any of the wave that we see now. Um, and, and so, um, I, I'm really, uh, I'm really flattered that you would even ask me to be on this. And I know I sucked up an enormous amount of time on yeah, here and, great. uh, uh, I'm just flattered you would ask me. Um, and, uh, I really appreciate they even remember me, uh, coming out there to, uh, to Cali. It was a lot of fun. And uh, everybody was always really nice to me out there, uh, and uh, I, I, I always felt like I was I was getting I, I was always I always felt like I was receiving more from from the boys and from the fans than I ever really deserved, um, and that's that's just honest. Like uh, I just always felt like I was I was always getting more than I was given, and. Um, and so it was hard to keep up with that. Sometimes I felt like, oh man, like there's so much pressure here, you know? And, um, you know, because everybody's given me so much and on, it was just, uh, it was, it was just so, so nice. And also, uh, thank you. I thank everybody, um, that, uh, that was even, uh, engaged or entertained or maybe even not entertained by me, <laughs> uh, as, as well. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it. 